order to understand this career, you have to you have to realize that the last thing I ever had on my mind was stardom when I started out. It never occurred to me that I would be a star ever, any time. I just wanted to be the man who did the best job of doing whatever he was assigned to do. Whether it was uh, describing a, a parade or a football game or announcing for a program or whatever it was in the beginning... And they gave me the early morning chore of playing the records and telling the time. And, and uh, it, it was just that I tried to make it entertaining. Enjoy the right combination of the world's best tobaccos. Mild, ripe tobaccos for Chesterfields. That means a milder, cooler, better taste for you. A. Always milder. B. Better tasting. C. Cooler smoking. A, B, C. Always by Chesterfield. They satisfy. Smoke cream from smoke ring. While a Chesterfield burns. Chesterfield presents Arthur Godfrey Time. In the late 1930s, a redhead from New York with a slight southern drawl named Arthur Godfrey was making a name for himself, hosting an all-night CBS show in Washington, D.C. on WJSV. He spent the overnight airtime playing records and chatting. Audiences were drawn to Godfrey's informal approach. <laughs> well, welcome back to Arthur Godfrey time, Tony. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Took you quite a time to get here, didn't it? Yeah, a little slow on the Long Island, you know. Oh. When you told me you lived on that island, I didn't know you meant Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding, though. We really missed you yesterday, Tony. Thank you, sir. Thank you. CBS has a lot of announcers, you know. But none of them wear such elegant hair oil as Tony. <laughs> It smells so delicious. It's, it's wonderful. What's the name of it? Eau de Schmo, ain't it? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> well, this is Godfrey in New York, the silent city. Except in the backseat of my cab. <laughs> you see a cab going down the street, you fellow New Yorkers. There's a big blue streak behind it. That's the one I just got out of. Brother, with all the snow on the streets and hardly any traffic, you know. In April of 1941, CBS picked up the MC for a national broadcast. The next October 4th, he began announcing for Fred Allen's Texaco Star Theater. Longtime CBS journalist and host Andy Rooney remembered Godfrey's popularity. He invented a whole style of radio, and people don't realize how important he was. And some of the people who were still popular. Oh, their style, the Godfrey. He invented Jack Parr, who's gone. He invented probably Dave Garraway. He invented Johnny Carson, in, in a sense. Godfrey has talked more words to more people than any person who ever lived, because he was on for an hour and a half, simulcast, a phrase we used to use, meaning both radio and television at the same time, for an hour and a half, five days a week. He was on 
On our Wednesday night, Arthur Godfrey and his friends, which was always one of the top-rated shows, either one, two, or three, and then Talent Scouts was often number one. That was half an hour Monday night. And then there was a Best of Arthur Godfrey, which was just a collection of stuff taken from edited out of the week uh, on half an hour on Saturdays. And nobody could have done it who didn't take it as easily as he did. They gotta be, after all, they gotta last all through January. Now let's see. I've been looking for some suggestions, and I found a good one for husbands. Men, this year, resolve to be more glamorous. This advice comes from Danu Edmund, a New York beauty expert. Alan and Godfrey he didn't mix well on air. Alan dropped him after six weeks. Godfrey continued to appear on CBS special broadcasts. His star catapulted when he was a tearful reporter at Franklin D. Roosevelt's funeral in April of 1945. CBS gave him a new morning show. Arthur Godfrey time. Debuted less than two weeks later on April 30th. Dressing gown to you and then come back and wake your wife. That's the way to do it. This, he says, will be a very thrilling moment. Yeah, like a Prince Charming rousing a, a pretty princess out of her sleep. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. With those pin curls and all that cold cream. More like backing the Queen Mary out of her birth, ain't it? What's with your pants? They're short there, Tony. How come? New look, huh? New look? In 1946, he was given Arthur Godfrey's talent scouts in prime time. In January of 1948, his Monday at 8.30 p.m. rating was 25.4. By then, he'd become one of the most powerful broadcasters on radio. He could hire or fire someone with a single sentence. He later did. It occurred to me that the only way you could achieve any longevity in our business was to grow, to grow in stature, to grow in interest. And so I tried to learn many different things and to learn all about a lot of different things so that I could speak with some sort of authority about them or at least some familiarity with them and keep my interests going uh, and growing, and therefore perhaps I would, I would intrigue some people to stay with me. Then, of course, the, the big thing that I depended upon always was integrity, because I was positive that the only way in the world a man could sell is to sell himself first. And so I decided that uh, I could be your companion. You're confident, the man upon whom you could, in, in whom you could place some trust. He also started this huge trend that no one ever considered possible before of being disrespectful of advertisers. Says here, Arthur, please announce that there will be a midnight show tonight of the women. And how about the women treating the men to this show? <laughs> It says, talking about style, wait till you see that gorgeous $250 nightgown that is part of the Technicolor fashion show in the new picture, The Women. Fancy that, paying $250 for a nightie. Godfrey was a real guy. He was talking to people, not performing in front of them. So I repeat, there ought to be 
Winners of his Talent Scouts broadcasts were given national exposure on his morning show. The ones Godfrey liked best could join the regular cast. His longtime announcer was Tony Marvin. Arthur had come to me one afternoon and asked me if I could work the show. And I said, well, gee, Arthur, I, I really can't. I'm, uh, you know, involved in the soap operas, and I have this to do and that to do. And I said, besides, Arthur, you're a sustaining program. You know, there's no, no loot involved. Let's face it, you know, you're, when you're concerned about making enough to keep body and soul together, although by then we've been doing quite well. But I really was very busy. I said, I'll take the assignment Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, because I know Tuesdays and Thursdays were dead for me then. Did that with Arthur for about four or five weeks. And he came to me again after the show. He said, my goodness, Tony, what do you do to that audience? He says, I've never had such a response. I said, well, I said, I don't know. I like people. I enjoy talking with them. I uh, am a little garrulous at times, albeit a little uh, ponderous, I suppose. But I said, that's an attitude that you develop if you want to do a particular kind of warm-up. He said, no, he said, I'm talking about how do you bring them to that point where I get this warmth from them. I said, well, I said, I find it very, very important that in doing a warm-up, you don't overdo it. You can do a warm-up that is so great and so fine and so humorous that when the star comes on, he's absolutely nothing. He falls <laughs> flat on his face. <laughs> Oh, that's nice going, Jeanette. <laughs> that was Jeanette Davis singing There Ought to Be a Society, written by the organist Lee Irwin. Lee Irwin. I never can get over the way Lee Irwin gets around on that thing. Have you ever you ever watched him there while he's playing that organ? He kicks the pedals with his feet, plays melody and chords. With In January of 1948, CBS estimated that the combination of all his shows were heard by over 40 million people each week. At least the guests are still stranded out there. High and dry. <laughs> I mean, high then dry. That's what I mean. <laughs> well, now these. Uh, well, well, I hope they have plenty of Chesterfields. That's all I hope. We're going into this uh, New Year's carton deal now, huh, Tony? Well, did you all did you all get a carton of Chesterfields for Christmas? I hope. About going. Much too early in the game Ah, but I thought I'd ask you just the same What are you doing? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 99. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we wrap up our trilogy on the most popular season in radio history with a look at the programming surrounding New Year's 1948. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find the show on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme is Margaret Whiting's version of What Are You Doing New Year's Eve? Originally recorded as a B-side for her single Don't Tell Me in 1947. With 2020 and a new decade upon us, it's a good time to look at some podcast consumer statistics. As of this past June, 70% of all Americans are now familiar with podcasts. That's up 10% from just two years ago. 65% of Americans listen to at least one podcast per month. That's up 
62 million people listen to at least one podcast per week. And of the podcast listening audience, 69% listen to three or more podcasts every seven days. People are listening at home, in their cars, and while walking around on the street. The podcasting industry is currently a $700 million one, and that number is set to break $1 billion by this time next year. As for breaking walls, our monthly audience has doubled in size from a year ago, and it's 66 times the size of November 2017. Thank you for continuing to listen. Join our Wall Breakers Facebook group to keep in touch with news, like Burning Gotham, our completely original audio drama series. It will be set in 1830s New York City, and it is in development. Listen to the latest teaser at thewallbreakers.com and be on the lookout for new announcements and audio regarding the series. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. Ladies and gentlemen, a good morning to you. This is John Cameron Swayze in the NBC Newsroom in New York. Over to the deal of the storm area today, the forecast is for better weather, which is encouraging news to many thousands of people. We'll have details of this top subject during the broadcast. Threat of a fuel oil strike in hard-hit New York City increases. Boston's truck driver strike is still in progress. Our direct reports of the morning take us to Washington, to Paris, and to London. More news in a moment, but now your announcer. I'm sure you don't have to be reminded that winter weather makes for bad driving and increases the chances of traffic accidents. The December 26, 1947 blizzard which struck the eastern seaboard of the U.S. saw in New York 25.8 inches of snowfall in less than 24 hours. Icy streets and roads make skidding easy. It was the worst storm since the Great Blizzard of 1888. Remember to take every precaution. Ocean liners were unable to move. Railroad stations were filled with stranded people. Importing and exporting out of New York ground to a halt. And the nation's reliance on truck transportation was immediately evident. A fuel strike ensued. By the morning of December 31st, many people had gone without some combination of a newspaper, fresh bread, milk, fuel, or coal for almost a week. Fire officials declared it a state of emergency. Mayor O'Dwyer took the first available plane home from his holiday vacation in Southern California. The death toll attributed to the storm is high, and the damage will run well into the millions of dollars. Hundreds of communities, particularly here in the east and the northeast, are without electric or telephone service. The estimate is that 16,000 homes in and around New York City are without electricity. What happens in that case? Well, here's exactly what happened in one of them. It's a first-hand report because this is what happened to the suburban Swayze's who are now living in a New York hotel. My son met me in the drive when I arrived home yesterday morning. We'll have to clean up this drive a little more, I told him, so that that uh, fuel oil truck can get in easily. Okay, he replied, but there's not too much of a hurry for the truck now. You see, the electricity is off. Well, here is what that rather bland statement meant. When the electricity goes off, we are without lights, refrigeration, heat, for the furnace ceases to function. The hot water heater also stops functioning, and we have no cooking facilities. 
So I drained the pipes, the furnace boiler, the hot water heater, put the dog in a boarding kennel, the car in a garage, and we moved to New York overnight, or maybe longer. Like thousands of other families, we'll get back maybe today, tomorrow, or next week. No one knows, not even the electric company spokesman. In the state of New Jersey, which is possibly the hardest hit area of all in the Northeast, the governor has proclaimed a state of emergency, and in the northern part, armories have been opened with cots available in order that families may find shelter. In New York City, the stock curb and cotton exchanges called off today's business, and the Boston and Chicago stock exchanges are also closed. The threat of another snowstorm in New York, it actually started late yesterday, seems past this morning, the storm having blown out to sea. Widespread damage is reported from Pennsylvania, where highways are glazed. This is also true pretty generally in the east and in some other parts of the country. Travel of all types has been disrupted, but rail travel is returning to near normal. In Illinois, damage to telephone equipment alone is being estimated at nearly a million and a quarter dollars. However, no matter how badly off any of the recently hit communities may be, Burlington, Iowa still is entitled to the unwanted first place in this regard. Burlington is isolated from the world except by shortwave radio, and the city of some 30,000 has been without light and power since New Year's Eve when the storm first struck. <laughs> Good morning. From America's newest fine restaurant, Tom Brenneman's on Vine Street between Hollywood and Sunset Boulevard, Kellogg's Pep and Procter & Gamble's Ivory Flakes serve you breakfast in Hollywood. Friends, now that the star of our program has just finished one motion picture, every studio in Hollywood is besieging him with offers. But he's playing hard to get. Well, maybe it's due to modesty or... Maybe it's just due to the meat shortage, for as we all know, ham is hard to get nowadays. And here he is, Tom Brenneman. At 11 a.m. Eastern Time from Hollywood, Breakfast with Brenneman was broadcast from Tom Brenneman's restaurant on Sunset and Vine. Thank you. Good morning, ladies. Good morning, Tom. Oh, I have some greetings to you out there along the network. Howdy from the ladies having breakfast in Hollywood, a radio program. Brenneman conceived the show one day in late 1940 while lunching with friends at Sardi's restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard. He was struck by the layout. The restaurant was arranged in tiers, with rows of booths surrounding a large open area. It was a natural setting for a remote radio broadcast. Motion picture, Golden Production, produced by Bob Golden, directed by Hal Schuster. Starring Bonita Granville, Beulah Bondi, Billy Burke, Zazu Pitt, Raymond Walburn, Eddie Ryan, Andy Russell, Spike Jones, and his city slickers, and the famous King Cole Trio. Of course, I'm in it, too. In fact, there ain't nobody in this picture but us stars. Well, if that's not a picture plug, I've never heard one. We'll have more to say about the picture a little later, but now we're getting into... The show began in 1941 and had its first famous incarnation as Breakfast at Sardi's, one of the liveliest and most off-the-cuff daytime human interest shows on the air. There were no singers, quizzes, or money to be won. It was wall-to-wall Brenneman and his ladies. Russell. Russell Smith, and you are... Mrs. Davielle Lucasen. Mm-hmm. From Bismarck, North Dakota. And Captain? Captain Brenneman had opened his own restaurant in 1945 and moved to a larger location in early 1948, broadcasting from inside. It gave him total control of the production. Like many other radio stars, 
Brenneman was enjoying some of his best success on the air. Culture, she would all remember her own name. <laughs> What's your name? Louise what? Boutine. Louise Boutine. I'm from where in Illinois? Payday, Illinois. Uh-huh. What part of the state is that, Miss Boutine? Hmm? Uh, what do you call <laughs> Oh, we'll get back to you a little later. She'll remember it in a moment. We'll, meanwhile, we'll meet some of our boys here. Give your hometown first, mate. I'm Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Radioman First Class Warren Straw Snyder. Good. Pelamander, New York. Ensign E.J. Dowling. Thank you, Ensign. Norwalk, Ohio. Private First Class L. Swartz. But on the morning of April 28, 1948, more than 600 people crowded outside Brenneman's new restaurant waiting for the show. Breakfast at Brenneman's was broadcast for the East Coast, live at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Many people would arrive before dawn to ensure they could get in. As Tom Brenneman readied himself at home, he suffered a heart attack while getting ready to leave. He died on the spot. He was 46. Give them a good welcome and let them out. Good luck. Good luck and thank you. Right. Well, now, your background was such that you were able to improvise easily. Now, what specifically was that background? Well, the background was from cueing pictures. That was very important to be able to improvise. That is, in cueing music for the situation. And where in the picture you had a long picture, well, it could be an hour and 20 minutes or an hour and 30 minutes, and you cued the picture. In uh, radio, it had to be limited to express the same idea in two, four, or seven seconds at the most. To be able to do that, you had to do a lot of quick thinking, but the background experience of the theater made quite a difference when I went into radio. Now, when you say that you had to do a lot of quick thinking, this must mean that you were improvising then Definitely, the because if you look at any good music, classical music, it takes at least four to eight bars to express the theme. And believe me, they don't have that time. It's too costly. <laughs> you have to express the idea in a limited amount of seconds. Now, at the time, that you may have your dress rehearsal, and they may have allowed you seven seconds only to get on the radio and on the air, as we speak of, and they're frantic because some actor or actress began to emote, you see, and took up the time, and suddenly they start either cutting their throat like this to you or throwing up two fingers or four fingers. So a thing that you might have planned for seven seconds ended up in four seconds. And conversely, I'm sure you had to film many times, too, oh, when somebody yes. lost the last page of a script. That was quite true. And you got this sort of a thing. The finger went round and round like a clock and keep on and keep on. And you better keep on. Just make some kind of noise, right? <laughs> Something. <laughs> keep it moving. I don't think silence was ever appreciated. Next, Laura Lawton. of Babo present Laura Lawson, the story of what it means to be the wife of one of the richest, most attractive men in all America. The story of the conflict between love and riches in a world so many dream of, but where so few dreams come true. (laughs) 
Now, ladies, here it is. The exciting New Year's friendship offer Laurel Lawton promised you. In this generous offer, Laurel sends you the very same handy birthday and Organist Rosa Rio played for a great many of the weekday soap operas on NBC, including Laura Lawton. She was present for one of Jan Miner's favorite line flubs. One day, Laura was visiting a friend who was dying of a dread disease in the hospital. After talking with her for a while, as best she could, where, as a matter of fact, Mary Jane Higby played the friend who was sick, and she was going, <gasps> all the time in the deathbed. And I looked down and said, oh, Elizabeth Manning, what a beautiful, complete replica of Queen Hatshepsut's pin she was wearing. It was a giveaway that we were giving away, and people would write in and get it. But always it would happen in some tragic moment so that you could hardly say the words, you know. And I got caught on the Hatshepsuts, and I said, Queen Hatshepsuts, and Ray Johnson broke up laughing. Mary Jane was dying laughing. Everybody was laughing on that microphone. It must have been tragic to the listeners who were really involved with the situation. Yes, you know, I can imagine. Having us all so. <laughs> Rosa Rio's organ playing big music. You were able to do so many things with the organ specifically. I suppose it was a very versatile instrument for radio. Well, the electric organ was very versatile in this in this way that it could be musical one time and then could actually be uh, terrifying another time. And that was very important in creating the mood. In storyline at Thanksgiving, Laura's husband Peter Carver was missing. By Christmas, it was assumed he was dead. In the new year, he was alive, estranged, and about to be set up for a reunion with Laura. And now, Laura Lawton. Today, Laura and her estranged husband, Peter Carver, are to meet for the first time in several months. And it's Madame Auguste Prunier, Peter's partner in the new French branch of his shipbuilding firm, who is responsible for the plot to bring the two together. Now, in the pantry of Peter's luxurious Washington penthouse, Madame Brunier is saying to his butler, Hodge, does Mr. Carver have a violent temper? Do you know? It's uh, difficult to say, Madame Prunier. Mr. Carver can become very angry, but... Oh, I didn't mean does he throw vases, Hodge. I meant, is he vindictive, vengeful? Does he bear a grudge? Never unjustifiably so, madam. Hmm. But when he has justification, he is vindictive. Is that right? Yes, madam. Well, that, of course, is fine. Hmm. I can see my beautiful plans for restoring the fortunes of the Prunier family in France disappearing. Will of the Wisp, brushed away by Peter Carver's rage at me. I don't follow you, madam. And I think he's going to be angry at me for bringing Mrs. Carver here today, Hodge. Do you, madam? I do. I don't agree. What do you think is going to happen? I think they'll look at each other, a long, tender look, and then they'll embrace. A moving picture ending. But life so seldom runs along those lines. The long, tender look could just as well be a look of contempt. Rage with judiation? No, madam. Why are you so confident, Hodge, when my knees are beginning to tremble? It's not that I'm confident, madam. It's just that you and Miss Gale are very nervous. It's natural. It's the feeling one has before an opening night, I believe. Our drama is about to begin, you mean, and we have stage fright. Yes, madam. I think you're right. Yes, madam. What do you think I ought to do about it? Do about it? Nothing, madam, except to... 
compose yourself in the living room for the guests. Uh, compose myself, yes. You look very beautiful, madam. If I may say so, the gown is most elegant. Thank you, Hodge. Mrs. Carver will arrive first. No, oh, no, Hodge. She comes last. I see. I have arranged it so that she comes last. The room is full of gay, elegant, chatting people and Peter Carver. Laura arrives, camera in hand, you following her with that crate of lights that she carries about, and... And then the long, tender look. I hope. I know, Madame Prunier, I know. Oh, bless you, Hodge. You're as sound as the Bank of England. Thank you, madam. Now then, I think I should arrange myself on the fire bench. Where's Mr. Carver's sister? Miss Gale is in the guest room, madam. Call her for me, will you please, Hodge? Thank you. This is indeed an opening night. Oh, I am cold. I am cold to my very toes. Dear heaven, make things go smoothly. Make them go smoothly. And half the time they brought in music that they had just a lead line. The harmonies may not be in it. So you had to be very quickly in a limited time because generally one hour you had. Mm-hmm. And out of the hour was the 15 minutes you were on the air. That left you 45 minutes in which had to be rehearsal time and dress. And you really had to go fast. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman! Yes, it's Superman, strange visitor from the planet Krypton, who came to Earth with amazing physical powers far beyond those of mortal men, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, wages a never-ending battle for truth and justice. Today, Superman investigating the reported death of Tony Amato, a refugee boy who Lois Lane is accused of sending to self-destruction, searches diligently for a sight of Tony in the depths of Canyon Gorge, on the edge of which the boy's hat and coat were found. Well, I'm convinced now that Tony is nowhere in this vicinity. But how and why did his clothes get here? Something mighty strange going on. Unless I can find Tony, this may never be explained. And Lois will continue to think she's a murderess. Back to Metropolis now to start unraveling this mystery. Away! They say bad news travels fast. I was the original Cisco kid. I did Philo Vance. I was the lead on the FBI in Peace and War, and I did such shows as the Kate Smith Show, Hobby Lobby, if anybody remembers that. We the people. I remember Hobby Lobby. I remember one time they had a talking dog. (laughs) Were you on that show? Probably was. You (laughs) You weren't the talking dog by any chance. Oh, and I did Ripley's Believe It or Not, which was a great show to be on. One show I remember so vividly in that one was the night uh, we had uh, 
Louis Armstrong as the guest. I don't know what the connection was. We're doing a story on Louis Armstrong, you know, believe it or not. We had B.A. Rolfe's brass band, and Louis drowned them out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we did two shows then. We did a show for the East Coast, and then we did a repeat. And on the repeat show for the West Coast, they were waiting for him. <laughs> and he drowned them out again. <laughs> Remember the date, this coming Friday, January 2nd. Don't miss it. At 5.15 p.m. on New Year's Eve, the Adventures of Superman signed on for mutual broadcasting over WOR in New York. And now, the Adventures of Superman. <laughs> Lois Lane, girl reporter, has told her friends on the Daily Planet about a young refugee boy named Tony Amato who had been trying to contact her saying he needed her help, but she had been too busy to see him. Then that morning, she received a phone call from Tony's aunt who said that Tony was dead and that she, Lois, was responsible. Tony's cap and jacket had been found at the edge of Canyon Gorge, a vast deep pit in the hills near Metropolis. As Superman, Kent streaked to Canyon Gorge, and after probing the dark depths of the pool at the bottom of the canyon, reported to the police that Tony's body was not there. As we continue now, once more in his guise of the mild-mannered, bespectacled Clark Kent, Superman has returned to Lois Lane's apartment, where he announces the results of his search to her and cub reporter Jimmy Olsen. Tony, or, or his body, isn't in the gorge... How did his cap and jacket get there? The only thing I can figure, Jim, is that somebody planted them there to make it appear that Tony met his death in Canyon Gorge. But, but who would... Why would I they... don't know who or why, but I intend to find out. Look, Lois, you said Tony phoned you a couple of times. Uh, did he ever give you any idea of what he wanted to see you about? No, he... Wait a minute. No? The last time he called me, he said something about food parcels. Food parcels? Well, yes, you of... know, the parcels for the hungry children in Europe. Oh, oh. Tony was captain of the campaign in his school, you see, and he said that he had something to tell me about them. You have no idea what that might have been? No. But I don't see how that could have anything to do with... with whatever happened to Tony. She was, neither do I. No, I'll admit I don't either, but maybe... Look, Lois, where did Tony live? Why... Why, I don't know, Clark... He told me he lived with his uncle and aunt somewhere, but I... Oh, I know where he lives, Mr. Kent. You do? Over on West 2nd Street. Okay, come with me, Jim. We'll go right over there. All right, let's go. This episode, the fourth chapter in a story arc entitled Hunger, Inc., featured Jackson Beck as the announcer, Claudia Morgan as Lois Lane, Clayton Collier as Superman, and Jackie Kelk, who is also starring on The Aldrich Family, as Jimmy Olsen. Well, I was Jimmy Olsen, the copy boy, and then I became a cub reporter. As the uh, that was, I was on that for seven years, so naturally I had to grow. Homer never grew, really. <laughs> I was sixteen for so many years; I never knew how old I was. Yeah, you and Jack Armstrong never <laughs> never seemed to make it out of high school. Right? And off and nanny. <laughs> but Superman was. You see, that ran concurrently with the Aldrich family. That was on, I think, at four forty-five or five forty-five on WOR. 15 minutes, three times a week. Three times yes, a week, three times Monday, Wednesday, yes. and Friday. Uh-huh. Bud Collier was Superman, and he was such a kidder. I had this tremendous scene this one day on Superman as Jimmy, and I was, you know, emoting my little heart out, and Bud came around, he, no one else had a speech, and he came around behind me and unloosened my belt and let my pants <laughs> slip to the floor, you see, and there I was in my shorts standing doing this part, and of course, to keep from breaking up was just, was really something, but um, it was great. Parcels, you know, the ones the school children are collecting for the hungry youngsters in Europe? 
Say, it's maybe that. Oh? Tony's act funny about the food packages last week or two. Funny? What do you mean? Well, Tony is all the time working very hard to get the food packages. You know, he's got a brother and two sisters in all the country. And he starved plenty there, too, before I bring him here last yeah, yeah, year. Yes, I know. But the last week or two, Tony stopped working so hard to get the package. He should get to worry, and he say, he must see Miss Elaine at the Daily Planet. She can have Help how? Tony no say. At 5.45 p.m., front page Farrell signed on NBC starring Stats Cotsworth. <laughs> now present the exciting, unforgettable radio drama, Front Page Farrell, the story of a cracked newspaper man and his wife, the story of David and Sally Farrell. Today, David is covering the story which he calls The Man Who Knew All the Angles. Beware of unpleasing breath that breeds between teeth. Although Stats was entrenched as the star of Casey Crime Photographer, he spent much of the same period starring as David Farrell, ace reporter for the Brooklyn Eagle. Front Page Farrell was a crime-themed soap opera, geared for men who'd be arriving home from work. In its earliest days, it was billed as the unforgettable story of marriage and a newspaper office, the story of a handsome, dashing young star reporter, one of New York's greatest newspapers, and the girl he marries on impulse to save her from throwing herself away on a rich man twice her age. It was produced by Frank and Ann Hummert, one of 19 shows they had on the air. And now, front page Farrell and the story he's covering for his newspaper. The story he called The Man Who Knew All the Angles. In spite of David Farrell's efforts, Cy Burdick, the racketeer who lends money to workmen at illegal rates of interest, continues to operate unchallenged. David Farrell's plan to trap Burdick with marked money failed because Burdick knew that David Farrell was posing as a laborer at the building project. Then, David Farrell began going from one of Burdick's victims to another but he still hasn't found a single man willing to testify against the racketeer. This evening, David Farrell's wife, Sally, suggested that her husband try once more to persuade Lester Gleason, the young crane operator who gave David Farrell the material for his original newspaper story about Burdick. Now, David Farrell has just returned from Gleason's apartment, and he seems quite upset as he calls... Sally! Sally! Yes, David, what is it? My goodness, you're back so soon. Yeah. Didn't have much of a talk with Lester Gleason, did you? Too much. Sally, darling, I wish you hadn't suggested I see him. I know you wanted to be helpful, darling, but I wish you hadn't been just this once. Well, he wouldn't testify against Bertie. Of course not. Oh, it doesn't do any harm to try, Not Dave. much it didn't. Look at my hands. Well, your hands? Yeah, calloused and grimy. The fingernails all cracked and broken. <laughs> they got that way from honest labor, Dave. From pushing a wheelbarrow, yes, darling. And Gleason spotted them. Oh? He thought he'd seen me working at the building project, but he couldn't believe it. After he took a look at these hands, he was sure. And is that what's got you so upset? Well, isn't that enough? Oh, David Farrell, I don't understand you at all. Why? Here you are fighting Cy Burdick, a powerful gangster who's been convicted three times already and faces a life sentence if he's caught again. You know that he'll do anything to prevent that, even murder if he thinks he has to. Well? And Burdick is perfectly well aware of what you're doing. He knows that you're posing as a workman on the job just to gather evidence against him. Well, well... <laughs> and after all, that doesn't frighten you one bit. But 
just because Lester Gleason, a perfectly harmless young man who used to be one of Burdick's victims himself, just because Lester found out about you now, well, you hit the ceiling, darling. Does that make sense? Well, it's because Gleason's so nosy. You wanted me to tell him what I'm doing there, but of course I wouldn't. Well, couldn't he guess? Oh, sure. But he must be afraid that I've got some angle that he doesn't know about. Yes, that would drive Lester out of his mind, wouldn't it? I'm glad you're so amused, darling. But, David, for goodness sake, what harm can Lester do? I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I'm going to keep right on going from one man to another. Maybe somehow, somewhere, I'll find one or two who'll be willing to bring charges against Burdick. And if Lester Gleason gets in my way with his angles, there's going to be trouble. Tell it through. You borrowed money from Cy Burdick, didn't you? All right, Phil, so I did, so what? Well, don't you understand? It's against the law to charge interest like he does. It's a crime. It's called usury. If a few of us guys go to the police with what we know, we can have Burdick put away for a long time. Save it, Farrell. I ain't interested. Mac, listen, will you? Between Burdick and his gun-toting gorillas, I'll bet you half the men on this job are tied to him with ropes around their necks. And he keeps pulling on the ropes. He gets every cent they earn. Half the time, their kids don't even get enough food. You're telling me... Like it didn't happen to me for a while. Well, then why don't you do something about it? Look, I'm a bricklayer. I put one brick on top of another. That's my business, and I mind my business. Do you get me? Okay, Mac. I'll see you around sometime. Hey, hiya, Mac. Oh, hello, Gleason. What do you know? Hey, what's a good word, Mac? How's the family, eh? Oh, okay. What's new? Not much. Hey, uh, Mac, don't mind my asking, but I notice you're talking to that guy Farrell. Yeah? Yeah, what about? Who wants to know? Ah, don't be like that, Mac. I got a reason for asking. What did he want from you? Gleason, look, I'm a bricklayer. I put one brick on top of another. That's my business, and I mind my business. Do you get me? Yeah. Okay, now you mind yours. Mary, no! God, let let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen.
I remember one script where I went over to Jack Benny's house and I sang the song, which I usually had to do every week, sing the song I was going to sing on the following Sunday's program. And I went over there and I sang the song, and after I had sung it, Jack says, Dennis, that'll be fine. And I said, well, thank you, Mr. Benny, and I got to go now. And he showed me to the door, and as I was about to leave, I turned, and I said, goodbye, Mr. Benny, and have a nice trip. I left, of course. He went upstairs, and he was halfway through packing before he realized he wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> you know, these are the silly type of things. There was another one I remember where... In the body of the show, I had done something very frightening to Jack because he had another singer on the program and I was very jealous and I was mad. So what I was doing, I was hiding in the bushes in his home at Beverly Hills and I was throwing rocks with notes attached through the window. And he would read them, you know, and I'd say, you are next and this type of thing. You think you can get away with it, but you can't. And all of this, well, sure enough, I was caught by the police in Beverly Hills. At the end of the show, in the tag, he calls everybody out, and he called me out for a bow, and he said to me, Dennis, what you did to me in the show tonight, frightening me the way you did, gave me an eerie feeling. And when I heard that, I said, what did you say, Mr. Benny? He says, what you did to me gave me an eerie feeling. And I said, gee, Mr. Benny, that's where I was born. He said, oh, Erie, Pennsylvania? I said, no, feeling West Virginia. <laughs> now, that's a lousy joke, but I could get away with it. That's not really a bad the character joke. Character that I play. It's not that bad a joke, actually. Yeah. Much like Tuesday night, NBC also dominated Wednesday's audience. CBS managed just a single show in the top 10, and NBC's only competition came from the American Broadcasting Company. At 8 p.m. Eastern Time, live from Hollywood over NBC, the Dennis Day Show took to the air. Dental Cream presents the Dennis Day Show, written by Frank Galen, with Sharon Douglas, Paula Winslow, Isabel Randolph, Dick Lane, Hans Conried, Charles Dant of the orchestra, yours truly, Vern Smith, and starring our popular young singer in A Day in the Life of Dennis Day. Use Colgate Dental Cream to clean your breath while you clean your Jack Benny's famous Irish tenor had been given his own solo show in October of 1946. He was zany, easily confused, and exhibited many of the same characteristics as his character on The Benny Show, even if in solo show storyline, the same name and voice was said to be a coincidence. Well, the dawn of a new year hasn't found any appreciable changes at the Anderson Boarding House in Weaverville, where our young hero Dennis Day rooms. His salary at Primitive, it was, mm -hmm. and then all they were doing was just trying out, you know, for 
color of people and how they looked and uh, camera techniques and all of that. So, the, of course, we didn't have color then either. It was only black and white. But it shows how primitive it was. Here I was lip singing. There was nothing live. So this is back in 1946, early 47. Mm -hmm. And then I think it started really to catch on at about 1949. Maybe we'll even be married before it's over. Yeah, with a home of our own. Yes. <laughs> and then maybe someday, later on, who knows, we may find a visitor dropping in on us. Oh, no, once I get away from your mother, I want to stay away. <laughs> I didn't mean my mother, Dennis. I meant someone much smaller and... Oh, cuter and prettier. Your father? <laughs> of course not. The visitor I mean would have tiny hands and feet and a lovely little pink face. Well, don't be silly. Only babies look like that. <laughs> well, that's what I'm talking about. Our visitor will be a baby. Really? Whose? <laughs> Ours, of course. Mildred, please remember that I'm mixed company. <laughs> The show's rating would be a healthy 18.2 in January of 1948. Now tell us a little bit about the routine when you got into the studio and saw this week's script for the first time. What was it? What did you do? Did you sit around the table and read? We did a round table. Mm -hmm. And as I remember growing up as a kid, the round table reading to me was just the most fascinating part of the process. I was a child, and I'll never forget, I did a show one time with Joan Crawford. And at the round table, I probably was 10 or so, 11 maybe, she leaned over to the director and she said, does that child ever talk? Because, and the director kind of laughed and he said, oh, she's just a well-trained actress. And Joan Crawford said, oh. But I had been trained, you know, as Johnny McGovern and Tommy Cook and all these other kids know that of kids. We were lucky to be there and we better know our skill and our craft and what we were doing or there were other kids waiting in line behind us that would have been very happy to do what we were doing so my mom always reminded me I was really a lucky kid you just listen that's what you want to do Gloria you want to listen so I did but she was funny because she didn't think I even could talk because I was so quiet <laughs> but it was wonderful the round table and on comedy shows like Bob Hope and Red Skelton which I was lucky enough to do the writers and their comments and interaction about what is funny and what is not was to me just fascinating. They would spend so much time reading a line and then reading it another way and then taking out a word, can you imagine? Because the punchline would come quicker and it would be funnier. And I can remember that, it was like surgery or something. And I thought, isn't that fascinating? They're worried about, you know, one word makes the timing different and the laugh would play in a different way. And so I was, I really had a wonderful education in comedy and the art of comedy. And it's, it's really fascinating. I was a very lucky child. Opposite the Dennis Day Show on ABC, Lionel Barrymore took to the air in Mayor of the Town. With the new year here, it was a good time for the characters to sit in reflection. That is, if the mayor's housekeeper, Marilee, voiced by Agnes Moorhead, 
could just manage to keep quiet. <laughs> That's it in the king-size coconut shell. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, yes, I believe in it. Why? Well, as an interesting experiment in peace and quiet, let's all sit just here and think at each other for the rest of the evening. Well, people can't be terrible, sociable, just no, 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 no words, just silent, restful thoughts. There's just no sense. Thank you, thank you. I knew you'd cooperate, so I just said thank you. Oh. <laughs> Don't mention it. Well, all right. Thanks. Of course, I can take a hint, you know. If people don't want to talk, I can be as close-mouthed as anybody else. Mm. And I love to think. It gives a person something to occupy their mind. I could sit right here till two weeks after doomsday without a single word passing my lips. Even as a baby, I didn't try to talk until I was nearly three months old, you know. <laughs> My mother was terrible afraid I'd never... Roscoe Gardener, aren't you ashamed of yourself? Huh? You should have your mind scrubbed out with soap and water. But gee whiz, what did I do, Mom? Oh, don't try to look so innocent. I got that thought you just transferred in my direction. <laughs> Really, I wasn't even thinking. Hmm. I was just lying here, trying to scratch my left ear with my right foot. Well, it wasn't you, it was the mayor thinking. And anyone who casts such thoughts behind a person's back... Look, look, be... look, you, you weren't tuned in on my station because my mind was a perfect blank. Well, somebody thought it. Mm -hmm. And seeing you and Roscoe are the only ones in the room. Well, it's a goldfish, Ah, sure, you can't eliminate that Tiffany sardine, you know. And I guess fish can send out pretty strong thought waves, seeing as they're supposed to be brain food. Mm -hmm. Well, well, I, I suppose it could have been Mr. Weissmuller. He sort of had his scales up because I cut down on his fish food. Last week, swimming through his castle, he got stuck twice. Golly, instead of trying to get him thin, I should think it'd be easier to get him a bigger castle. Mm-hmm. Well, in case you don't know it, Roscoe. There's a post-war fish castle shortage, you know. The price of even small two-entrance grottoes has rocketed sky high, and any goldfish lucky enough to have any kind of a castle, no matter how inconvenient, had better hang on to it. Huh. He looks sort of lonesome, swimming around in the fish bowl all by himself. Mm -hmm. Whatever happened to Mrs. Weissmuller? Did Mr. Weissmuller eat her? No, no, they were just temperamentally mismated. Uh -huh. So I took her back to the five and dime store. What did he do? Eat seaweed in bed? No, no. But Mrs. Weissmuller likes to swim clockwise, and Mr. Weissmuller wanted to swim counterclockwise. It was just smash bang crush every minute of the day, you know. Mm. Got me so nervous, but Roscoe. Yeah, Will you please take your foot down from behind your neck and see who that is at the door? Well, sure, Willie. I was just trying to see what I'd look like if I was a monkey. Oh, my. I bet you if I could get both feet up, I'd look pretty oh, good. Oh, monkey. Mercy, my stars. I don't know where he gets such crazy ideas. There's nothing crazy about him at all. They're just normal conversation for a boy of his age. Yes, well, I don't know, Mayor. I sometimes think we should never have let him take Spanish. What in thunder Spanish got to do with it? Well, goodness knows what he's been putting in his head, you know. 
If they're going to teach foreign languages, they should teach them in English so the parents can understand them. <laughs> yeah, they're both right there in the study, Dr. King. Oh, uh, thank you, Butch. Hello, Mayor. Good evening, Marilla. Oh, why, Dr. Kate? Oh, Doc. We we didn't send for you, but you can sit down if you won't send a bill for your time. <laughs> Along with Miss Moorhead and Mr. Barrymore, Mayor of the Town featured Conrad Binion, Priscilla Lyon, and Gloria McMillan. I was a freelance mm -hmm. actress, and I did just lots of radio shows, lots and lots, hundreds of radio shows. I did... Mayor of the town with Lionel Barrymore and Agnes Moorhead, and just on and on. Despite a rating that peaked at 18.9 in February, Mayor of the town left ABC's airwaves at the end of the season. In late May, Noxima's agency announced the sponsor was canceling its sponsorship, effective June 30th, after four seasons. It was revived on Mutual on January 2nd, 1949, but it managed no higher than a five-point rating in any month for the remainder of the season. Mayor of the town departed the radio airwaves for good on July 3rd, 1949. And didn't you do that program with John Barrymore? It didn't start with Barrymore. It started with a format that was written by Paul Henning, who created the Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, and Petticoat Junction. Henning at that time conceived the idea of taking historical figures such as Christopher Columbus and in 27 minutes doing a little operetta with two or three songs to be sung by me or the King's Men, a group of four male singers, Mary Boland as Queen Isabella for me to portray Christopher Columbus. And the way this was done was to somehow get into a dream sequence in which I would dream the operetta. Having been reading a book on Christopher Columbus, uh -huh. and the book that I had been reading would be the mainstream of the little 26 minutes of the story, the operetta. And it started off with a rating of 17, which is a fairly good rating, in March of 1940 and went down to a summer of four, rating of four. They kept Paul Henning on and then said to me, will you pick from the list of six or seven directors we've given you a man you think can pull this show out of the abyss in which it has gone? I picked Ed Gardner, who later on became Archie of Duffy's Tavern, mm -hmm. because I'd worked with Gardner on my Fleischmann hour when he substituted for several weeks in 1936 and 35, I knew that although he was a very difficult person, he was a very gifted and a very talented person in writing and in direction. He took the show from a law of four, and it was his idea, not mine, to use Barrymore, which he, whom he had used on the Texco show when he directed the Texco show before I did the Seal Test show. Mm -hmm. And as a result of the use of Barrymore, the show rose from September 1940 from a low of four to a rating of 25. It's amazing. He was really a blessing. He was a, a, just a tremendous shot in the arm and made the show truly great. Between 9 and 10 o'clock on Wednesday nights, NBC aired two of the top 15 shows on the air. The first 
was Duffy's Tavern, who broadcast to a 23.9 rating in January. The brainchild of star Ed Gardner, the show debuted as part of CBS's forecast pilot series on July 30, 1940. By the winter of 1947, it was in the midst of its fourth season on NBC. Duffy's Tavern was allegedly located in Manhattan on 3rd Avenue and 23rd Street. It was the eyesore of the East Side, where the elite meet to eat. Gardner's heavily New York-accented Archie has inspired several characters in the years since. It's Wednesday night, so we take you now to Duffy's Tavern with our guest tonight, Gary Moore, and starring Archie himself, Ed Gardner. Duffy's Tavern is brought to you by Bristol-Myers, makers of Truchet for softer, lovelier hands and Vitalis for well-groomed hair. Truchet, Vitalis. Amen, your hair stays neater with Vitalis every day. And girls, your hands stay lovely when you guard them with Rouchet. Hello, Duffy Tavern. Where do you leave me, Tate? Archie, the man just speaking. Duffy ain't here. Oh, hello, Duffy. Uh, tonight, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Gary Moore, the collegiate-looking uh, guy from the uh, Take It or Leave It show. Uh, sort of a queen for a day with a crew haircut. <laughs> huh? Is he funny? Oh, no, Duffy, he ain't supposed to be funny. He's a wit. <laughs> yeah, he does that uh, smart, satirical stuff, you know, sort of a... Tame Oscar Wilde. <laughs> but uh, he's a nice guy, Duffy, you know. He don't let his brains go through his head. <laughs> huh? A friend of yours is coming down tonight, too? An accountant to check the books, huh? That's nice. An accountant to check the books? If I had the wings of an angel... Eddie, please. <laughs> Look, Duffy. I've been keeping them books for years and... Huh? You think the books have been keeping me? <laughs> Duffy, this is practically an accusation. I'm sorry. Goodbye. Eddie, he's wise to me. <laughs> the auditor's already on his way down, he said. I guess I'm dead. Yeah, well, well, what makes you so sure this auditor's gonna find the shortage? Did you ever hear of an auditor finding a longage? <laughs> Well, uh, how much you figure the books is short? I mean, is it uh, petty larceny or grand larceny? What do you mean? Well, uh, is it rent money or grain market? Grain <laughs> market? Eddie, it's bad enough that I'm a crook. You don't have to infer that I have friends in Washington. <laughs> This must be the guy now. Good evening. My name is Elmer Waterprice. I'm the accountant. And you are Archie, I take it. He is Archie, and he took it. <laughs> uh, look, Mr. Waterprice, uh, you're not the guy that inspected the books last year, are you? No. 
No, no, that's right. He ain't around no more. He's in a cement barrel in the bottom of the East River. Young man, I cannot be intimidated. Where are the books? Okay, they're over there in the corner in that safe. What safe? That hole in the wall. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, uh, hello, Finnegan. Sir, uh, who is young stranger? Uh, he's an accountant, Finnegan, you see... Duffy thinks I'm a crook. Uh, just a minute. Duffy thinks you're a crook? That's the allegation. That's the allegation. <laughs> How can he think a thing like that about you, Watch? Well, you see, the books is a little unbalanced. Well, who ain't? <laughs> but uh, to say that an honest guy like you is crooked, uh, I got a good mind to punch that Duffy in the nose myself. Well, Finnegan, it's nice to know that I still have one friend that believes in me. Well, gosh, after all, we've known each other for a long time, ever since we was kids. Yep, that's right. Because uh, you and me know each other about as good as any two guys in the whole world, huh? Yeah, just about. Uh, how much did you clip them for? <laughs> Wait a minute, Finnegan. Well, I... Oh, excuse me. Hello? Oh, hello, Gary. You lost? Uh, well, where on uh, 3rd Avenue? Where are you? A drugstore on Park Avenue? Yeah. Well, I'll uh, tell you what you do. Uh, go out to the street, you see, and you'll see a lot of them dames with that new look with them long dresses. Well, just keep going east till you see knees. <laughs> Wednesday night's ratings winner was Mr. District Attorney on live from New York at 9.30 p.m. Mr. District Attorney, champion of the people, defender of truth, guardian of our fundamental rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mr. District Attorney was for many years the nation's best-liked crime show. It was inspired by the exploits of Thomas E. Dewey, New York's racket-busting DA of the late 1930s, whose front-page war against racketeers and corruption swept him into the governor's office. In 1948, Governor Dewey would run for president on the Republican ticket. In our constant experience with men who live by fraud and deceit, ladies and gentlemen, it is obvious that they succeed largely by one old and simple method, that of making it seem easy to get rich quickly. I need hardly add that never in that same experience has this proved to be so. Tonight's case of murder in rhythm and rhyme begins in an old and disreputable office building here in our city. Harry, here's yeah. one. The jerk can close the ten spot in cash, too. In cash? <laughs> <laughs> Let me have it, baby. Oh, you said the next letter with cash in was mine. If you finish the recordings, Dolly. Oh. Come now, let Harry have the money. That's a nice girl. Look who's talking. You ain't even printed the song sheets for the last six poems we got. I will, my pet, I will. Uh, what's a poem? Huh? Uh, the one with the ten spot. Who thinks he's Irving Boylan this time? Oh, just reading the letter. And I read your ad where you say you can write music to fit my poem. So I enclose it. <laughs> Smart boy. There's more. 
Also, where you say in the ad, you will send me a record of my song as sung by an international star of stage and screen. <laughs> That's me, Buster. Uh, yeah, he didn't send for the signed copy, did he? Oh, uh, there ain't no extra two bucks if that's what you're looking for. Oh. Oh, brother, get a load of the title. On the poem? Yeah. Granny's making cornbread up yonder tonight. Oh, no. Granny's doing what? That... <laughs> making cornbread, whatever that is. Let's see now. Boom. Granny's making biscuits tonight. Boom, boom. Cornbread. Cornbread tonight. Boom, boom. Gra uh, what's the rest of it? What do you care? We'll use the same tune we always do. Yeah. Who's that? Well, how should I know? One answer? Uh, uh, you go, Dolly. Whoever it is, get rid of him. That's a help. Uh, I'm not here, Dolly. All right. All right, go on. Uh, duck in the back room. Hello. Hey, excuse me. Is this the Great White Way Music Publishing Company? Yeah, it is. What can I do you for? Well, I beg your pardon, I... Off with it, chum. I'm a busy girl. Hey, wait a minute. If that stinking Sam Denver sent you, he can fly a kite for his dough. Sam Denver? Yeah, the book of you. Did you come... Wait a second. What do you want, huh? Why, I, I sent you my poems. I'm Tim Newton. You're who? Tim Newton. I have Mr. Madison's letter right here. Somewhere. Oh, Oh, I see. Oh, you're a customer. Huh? <laughs> oh, gee. Excuse me for living. <laughs> I thought you were somebody else. <laughs> have I come to the right place? Oh, you sure have, Mr. Newton. Come right in. In the fall of 1947, the series was in the midst of a decade-long run in this Wednesday night time slot, with Bristol Myers as the sponsor. Broadcast from New York. Mr. District Attorney star Jay Jostin, with Vicky Viola as Edith Miller. In January of 1948, the show had a rating of 24.6. The popularity was such that NBC piggybacked their new crime drama to it at 10 p.m. Hellmell Famous Cigarettes present The Big Story. Okay, that's Moose. Now, you all know what to do. Let him in. Hiya! Hiya, Joey! Sit down. What's the matter? Hey, put that gun down, Joey. What's the matter, huh? Nothing. Not a thing. Just ratted. You just went and sang to the cops. I didn't! Shut up. Shut up and start to die. Because here it comes. Oh, don't, Joey, don't! <laughs> <laughs> Just a gag, Moose. It wasn't loaded. I was getting bored, so I thought I'd have a laugh. Okay, now let's get to work. I got a nice job. All lined up. The Big Story. Another in the thrilling series based on true experiences of newspaper reporters. Tonight... To Ted Prager of the New York Daily News goes the Palmell Award for the big story.
notes that are alike, and one that is outstanding. And of America's leading cigarettes, one is outstanding. At 10 p.m. Eastern Time on NBC, the big story took to the air live from New York. Ernest Chappell announced, and some of New York's most well-known character actors also appeared. There's a reason. The series grew out of a real crime case. Bernard J. Proctor, independent producer of radio shows, read a Newsweek account of how two Chicago Times reporters had worked for months on a 14-year-old murder case before uncovering evidence that led to a pardon for a man wrongly convicted. He wondered if a series built around reporters and their big stories would work on the air. The show premiered on April 2nd, 1947, and by the autumn, was topping Bing Crosby on ABC in their head-to-head ratings battles. It won its time slot with a 16.1. Now the authentic and exciting story of Manhunt in Manhattan. You are Ted Prager, night reporter for the New York Daily News, and murder is almost old hat to you. You've covered the doings of Vincent Mad Dog, Carl Dutch Schultz, Sony Madden, and Murder Incorporated for your paper. You know your underworld. You know robbery, arson, burglary, and homicide, almost inside out. The way an insurance man knows statistics. Yes, you know your business. You're even a little blasé about crime, until one night, about one in the morning, you're in a friendly bar on East Seventh Street, and the conversation is small talk with Sandy, the bartender. Oh, football is not football anymore. Too professional, Sandy. Give me those college teams. Yeah, I agree with you, Mr. Prager. You take that old Notre Dame team. I'd rather watch them than it. Hey, Mr. Prager, you see that? What? That guy just walked in. The、uh, one with his hair all slicked down. Yeah, looks like there's four or five of them. Say, I know that face from somewhere. Some small-time mug or other. What are they spreading out like that for? I don't know. Sandy, it looks like a stick-up. There's <laughs> a smart man, cute too. Give that man a cigar. That's just what it is. All right, everybody, quiet. And you people haven't figured it out yet. This is what we call a holdup. Get your wallets out, rings, jewelry from the ladies. My boys will pass among you. Barkeep, you. Me? Open up that register and empty it on a bar now. Make the rounds, boys, and you don't have to leave none of these good people carfare. Let them walk. <laughs> what are you looking at, cute guy? Nothing. I see what you got. Here's my money. Forty、yeah. dollars. I'll take your pen too and your wallet and that ring. Okay. What do you think you're looking at? My face. But you like what you see? Maybe you want to remember me. Is that it? Here, Moose. Yeah. Give me a blackjack. This cute fella here is giving me the once over. Chief, we're all set. We got everything cleaned it out. Good. Let's go. Okay, we go. Too bad, cute guy. And I was just gonna give you something to remember me by. So long, dopes. Then something incredible happens. Five crooks walked in, but only three leave. Two of them. Are still standing in the bar, looking bewildered, not knowing what to do. Then you realize that they're not armed. Maybe you can stop them. You move, and pandemonium breaks loose. Hey! 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 Hey!
Okay. The cop got him both. Good shooting there, officer. Thanks. Well, you couldn't get them all, but at least you got two of them. Yeah. Ain't that, officer? I don't think so. Say, who are you? You look familiar. Ted Prager of the news. Oh, yeah, sure. I remember you, Mr. Prager. Excuse me, I gotta call the ambulance. Nice work, officer. I'd like to write you up. What's your name? Matt Gaines, 22nd Precinct. I could use the story, Mr. Prager. You could say it's too bad I only got two of them. <laughs> Too bad I only got two of them. Ain't that the funniest thing you ever heard? Oh, that's terrific, uh, Joey. <laughs> listen, when Joey Rice does it, it gets done. Yeah. Too bad I only got two of them, said the policeman. Listen, from the paper, get this. It was not until after the shooting that the officer discovered his fatal mistake. <laughs> the two men who had entered the bar with the gang were not part of the mob. I like that, not part of the mob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead, finish it, Joey. Yeah, hold your horses, not part of the mob. Instead, there were two innocent taxi drivers that the leader of the mob had forced to stay behind to act as shields so that the actual robbers might escape under cover of the violence directed against the taxi drivers. <laughs> Boy, is that the payoff? Yeah, those dopes stand in there. You know, I can just see them. Jeez. Imagine what they'd done. They start beating up those taxi drivers, and a cop comes and bang, bang. Law and order lays them out cold and says... Too bad I only got two of them. <laughs> <laughs> they dead, Joey? No, no, no. Only one. Here, listen. One of the drivers, George Beaver, age 51, died instantly. The other, Edgar Benedetto, 34, is in City Hospital, where his condition is listed as critical. <laughs> Boy, I ask you, ain't that the best scream you ever heard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sit down, Gaines. Why don't you sit down? If he dies, Mr. Prager, I'd... I don't know what I'll do. Now, why blame yourself? You you made a mistake any cop might have. A mistake? That's right. Anyone could have done it. No one blames you. I killed a man, an innocent man, and there's another one inside there in the operating room, and he may die, too. I murdered two men. You didn't murder anyone. You accidentally shot two men in the line of duty. Look, I saw the face of the man who really murdered Beaver, the leader of that gang. It was a cruel face and a vicious one. He's the murderer, if anyone is. I tell you, if Benedetto dies, Mr. Gaines, I'll make you a promise. I'll find that man. I know his face from somewhere. I don't care how long it takes or what I have to do, but I'll find him. That man, Benedetto, in the operating room, I checked up on him. He's 34. Been driving a cab since he was 21. Got a wife and two kids, a girl, seven, and a little baby, 21 months. I killed their father. I made a widow out of his wife. Stop it, Gaines. You've got to stop it. In the first place, Benedetto's not dead. No, only one of them's dead. Only Beaver's dead. Only a 51-year-old man's dead. That's not so bad, is Why it? Why do you torture yourself? Yeah, maybe I ought to just go outside. Sit and... down and just wait, man. Try it. Maybe it won't be so bad. Yes? What is it, Doctor? I'm sorry, gentlemen. Mr. Benedetto died on the operating table. 
We never gave them any trouble because uh, Carol Carroll didn't write that kind of stuff or anything that was going to be sensible, and you didn't want to get in a long argument with them. Now, a fellow like Hope, he had problems because, you know, a joke's a joke, and if you get a good one and it's uh, on the borderline, you hate to give up on it. Well, we never had any problem in that direction, but the censorship was very rigid. When the blue of the night meets the gold of the day, someone waits. This is Ken Carpenter welcoming you to Philco Radio Time, produced and transcribed in Hollywood with John Scott Trotter and his orchestra, the Rhythm Airs and Bing's guests, Danny Thomas and Rudolph Schmohopper. This being the eve of the new year, we, of course, would like to bring you Father Time. Of course, we can't have father time, so instead we bring you a fellow who's been a father several times, Bing Crosby. That's pretty involved, Ken, but it all worked out. You're Uh, you're really frothy tonight, aren't you? I thought I did that superbly. You keep up this pace. I'd like to get a load of you about 3 o'clock this morning. (laughs) Tomorrow morning. (laughs) It's a big night, Bing. What are your plans? Tonight? Yeah. Oh, I'm taking it very easy, Ken. Around 11 o'clock, I'm going up to the Brown Derby. Uh Oh. Dining room. Oh. Going to have some cob salad, a slice of roast beef, a piece of cake, and a glass of milk. And about midnight, I'm going to let out a war whoop, stagger out of the door, and fall flat on my face in Vine Street. <laughs> What's the idea of that? Want people to think I'm a playboy. <laughs> Being diving out of the sidewalk, you're liable to get all skinned up. With all those other people lying there? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> 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 Bing, I'm afraid you'll give people the wrong impression of Hollywood. I'm only just kidding. Why, man. even on yeah. New Year's Eve, nobody lies on Vine Street. Ken, it's swarming with song pluggers. How can you say nobody lies on Vine Street? <laughs> and I include Sam Weiss and Tubby Garrett, too. <laughs> but now, Ken, I think it advisable to do a song before some reveler busts in here and tosses a fistful of Connecticut. Confetti in my mouth. I'd sure like to hear you sing Come to the Mardi Gras with a mouthful of confetti. It'd be startlingly realistic, Ken. However, Mr. Hope and I have a new picture out, you know, called The Road to Rio. Road to Rio. Oh, I must see that. Me too. I want to see who got the girl. <laughs> Anyhow, there's a very clever number in the picture called You Don't Have to Know the Language, and if the rhythm airs will help me prove it, we'll hit the road. Oh, my, that Buddy Cole has got a built-in beat, hasn't he? Even with declining ratings, Bing Crosby was feeling festive. On New Year's Eve, Danny Thomas was his guest on Philco Radio Time, and the two yucked it up as the clock crept closer to midnight. By the end of 1947, the magnetic tape recorder had replaced cumbersome records, and primetime network transcription was here to stay. Television was just around the corner. It seemed to me like it was a long way off. It it looked like an insurmountable barrier, all the things they had to top. I don't think anybody thought it was imminent. I didn't really pay much attention to it. I was busy with the golf and the fishing and the hunting and the trips. I was having a good time. I was going to do what I was doing and await development. In our uh, guest book this evening, we're happy to note the signature of one of America's funniest gentlemen. We deem it very good timing on our part to have him appear on our New Year program because 
1948, you're going to hear a lot from MGM's new comedy star, Danny Thomas. Happy New Year, Danny. On this very eve, the tiny tot in the diaper arrives, you know. Well, congratulations, Bing. <laughs> this time, I hope it's a girl. I was referring, of course, to the arrival of little 1948. Oh, so you're numbering them now. <laughs> I knew you'd run out of names eventually. <laughs> Thank you for the flattery, dear boy. Oh, you're welcome. Tell me, Bing, you huh? going to sit up and see the New Year in and watch the old man with the scythe go out? Leave hope in his nose out of this. Now, will you, Danny? We had a very nice start. Oh, now, Bing, it's New Year's Eve. Maybe you ought to be kind to Hope. After all, he's a pretty important fellow. Hope important? Well, he was invited to Princess Elizabeth's wedding. Hope wasn't invited to England. No? He's so full of corn, somebody threw him on the friendship train. That's <laughs> how he got to Europe. But enough about Ho's nose. <laughs> Danny, what are your plans for the coming year? Well, Bing, I just signed a contract, and this week I go on the air with a radio program of my own. Oh, you're going to be a comedian on the radio, hmm? Well, Danny, take it from a fellow who's been kicking around the killer cycles for a lot of years. A comedian's life is no snap. Hmm. Forget comedy. Why don't you do a quiz show? You know, I have a lady in the balcony, Doctor. Look, if I had a lady in a balcony, who'd have time for a quiz show? <laughs> oh, Jay, look at Danny. I want, I want you to think this over. Being a big radio star, what does it get you? Fame, fortune, glory, a house in Beverly Hills, a swimming pool. What is it when you add it all up? Look, don't add it up. Just wrap it up. <laughs> Think of the price you've got to pay, Danny. This racket really takes it out of you, son. Look at Jack Benny, Fred Allen, Al Jolson. Those men are all sagging. Yeah, that's from the money in their pocket. <laughs> Jack Benny doesn't have pockets. <laughs> no. You ever seen those bags under Fred Allen's eyes? Don't tell me those are Benny's pockets. <laughs> Besides, Bing, it's, it's too late to discuss. You're committed, huh? No, yeah, you're the program go. is all set. Well, I... This week I'm going to do my first show. Well, I did my best to show you the light, but what must be, must be. You going to do a show like mine? No, I'm going to have a live show. <laughs> Peasant. <laughs> But, Bing, well, something's been bothering what's me. What's your problem? My, my show is only two days away, and I haven't got a script. A script? What's that? <laughs> well, on the other shows, they like to write things down on paper. You know, they don't just get up and talk like we're doing. Oh, <laughs> Modern innovations. I've never heard of And on thing. most shows, they rehearse. Rehearse? Sure. They, they get together before the show and complain about the script. Certainly <laughs> <laughs> seems a shameful waste of time. Maybe for you, Bing, but I need some jokes. That's foolish. Look at me. I don't tell jokes. I get big laughs. I know, Bing, but I want to wear regular clothes. <laughs> Very flashy gimp I'm wearing tonight. <laughs> this, this gimp is the talk of Nightmare Alley. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but I suppose with your script and all your fancy notions, you've managed to... Snag an unsuspecting sponsor? Yep. I'm going on the air for Sank Coffee. Thank you, huh? Mm-hmm. Caught him sleeping, huh? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Sank is the coffee that lets you sleep. I'm on for Philco, the radio that keeps you awake. <laughs> no, the reason Sank Coffee lets you sleep is because the caffeine is removed. Oh, very interesting. How do you know all this? Two days a week, I'm down at the factory removing it. <laughs> I grabbed you, huh? Oh, ho, ho. 
The small print in those contacts. That ever-loving. <laughs> well, it took me a long time, but I made it. Anyhow, I'm very happy about it. Danny Thomas. Head caffeine clutcher. <laughs> I know just the spot you're in, too, son. I spend one month a year at the Philco plant installing scratch eliminators on the phonographs. <laughs> well, tell me, how do they work? Oh, they stop my scratching. <laughs> Danny, tell me, how did you get the... Ca- how did you get the caffeine out of... He's got a very laughing fiddle yes. player today. <laughs> Man, the Sam Fried is with us. He laughs it up good. Old vaudevillian. Okay. Tell me, how do you get the caffeine out of that little coffee bean? Well, I put each bean in a vice, mm-hmm. and I shine a light in its eyes. Then I beat it with a rubber hose. <laughs> hey, that's exciting. Maybe I can get Mark Hellinger to make a picture out of that. Oh, great. We can call it Forever Slumber. That's a great story. I can see it all now. You play the part of a coffee bean, and there's a terrific suspense right up to the last reel because nobody knows whether you're going to wind up a drip or a regular grind. <laughs> Sounds like a great part, thing. Oh, you've got to win an Oscar, or at least a coffee master. <laughs> Say, speaking of awards, Bing, mm. I seriously want to congratulate you on the box office magazine poll. Box office? Yes, sir. They voted you the top film favorite for the fourth consecutive year. Well, I'll be diddly dad burn. Brother Ever. Bing Crosby helped fund Amex and 3M's technological breakthroughs, later obtaining exclusive West Coast distribution rights. In a rare season with a shrinking audience, Crosby still made a significant profit. When he wrapped up his original three-year contract with ABC, Crosby departed in the fall of 1949 for CBS. Good health to all from Rexall. From Hollywood, it's the Jimmy Durante Show. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gary Moore speaking for Jimmy Durante, who has been hospitalized to undergo a few minor repairs. The pinch hitting with me as guest star tonight will be America's favorite bad little boy, the incomparable Red Skelton. So stick around as we go on with the Jimmy Durante Show. Yes, 10,000 Rexall drugstores who carry the complete line of top quality Rexall drug products bring you the Jimmy Durante Show with Peggy Lee, Candy Candido, Roy Bargy and his orchestra, yours truly Howard Petrie, and pinch hitting tonight for Jimmy Durante are Red Skelton and Gary Moore. So let's give a large welcome to the Schnauzer's old sidekick, the star of Eversharp's Take It or Leave It, Gary Moore. Thank you, thank you very much, Howard Petrie, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. A very happy December the 31th to you all. Gee whiz, here it is, New Year's Eve, and in just a few hours, it'll be 1948. No, no, not 1948. Don't let it be 1948. You can't let it be 1948. Don't let it be 1948. Oh, now, come, Mr. Truman. You'll have to face it sometime. (laughs) Gee whiz, I'm in trouble already. Oh, Gary, it's wonderful to have you with us again. We're just so sorry the schnoz isn't here to bid you welcome in person. Well, I am too, Howard. I'm very fond of the schnoz. Ratings woes were forecast for Jimmy Durante without Gary Moore, his partner for five years, who had gone solo to host Take It or Leave It. 
Sponsor Rexall Drugs moved Durante to NBC's Wednesday schedule at 10.30. The comedian fooled everyone by posting a solid three-point gain. However, by 10.30 p.m. on Wednesday nights, audiences began to drop off, and Durante's season rating was 13.9, tied for eighth in the Wednesday rankings. One of the showgirls tripped and fell across our table. Well, what happened? Durante took one look at her and said to the waiter, I didn't order this, but it looks so good, I think I'll take it. Now, radio and television are both, as we know, medium able to make a unique blend of information with entertainment. The new supplying function that radio could perform was evident very early to everyone. Yet it had a fairly tough time to get itself established, not with the public, but with itself and with its competition. The past always seems a little crazy when you view it through the reducing glass of time. And perhaps the early days of broadcasting were more than just a little crazy. But they were exciting and they were days of discovery. Like all discoverers, here and there you found splendid new harbors, and here and there you ran shamefully on a mud bank, and more dangerously, onto rocks. Lots of things that seem funny now were distinctly not funny when they happened. This is the way it has always been, and this is the way I think it's always going to be. Thank you and good afternoon. CBS William Paley returned from World War II in 1946. He found himself the head of a network which had fallen to a distant second place in ratings while he was away. Paley took a look at what each of the four networks brought to the broadcasting table. He quickly decided to reorganize CBS. He named Frank Stanton president and himself chairman of the board. William Paley understood that in order to be better than NBC, he'd first have to be different. He was to devote the majority of his time to programming, convinced that by making CBS the home for, and owners of, the best fictional shows on the air, he'd chip away at NBC's advantage. By the end of 1947, CBS put 36 new radio programs on the air. Paley was willing to sustain costs while waiting for sponsors to get interested. One of these shows was Escape, it debuted on July 7th, and at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time on New Year's Eve, 1947, Escape broadcast an episode entitled Confession, starring William Conrad. You are lost in a London fog, uncertain whether the figures looming around you are real or creatures of your imagination. And somewhere in the wet grayness lurks a murderer from whom you must escape. Escape, 
produced and directed by William N. Robeson and carefully contrived to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to a fog-shrouded city and the terror of a shell-shocked mine as Algernon Blackwood describes them in his ghostly story, Confession. There was no doubt about it. The woman was dead. Her cheek was cold to my touch. The head of the long, sharp hat pen protruded from her breast above the heart. She was dead. Murdered. And I stood there by the bed, my brain whirling crazily. I was alone in an empty house with a murdered woman. And then suddenly fear flashed across my brain and cleared it. I heard the door below open and close. Footsteps. Someone was coming across the downstairs hall, onto the stairs, coming up, up here. In a moment, I would be discovered. In a moment, someone would walk into this room and see me standing over the body. In a moment, my escape would be cut off. Quickly, I slipped across the hall and into another of the empty bedrooms. I leaned against the closed door, breathing heavily, listening to those steps come closer. Would he look into any of the other bedrooms first? Would I be discovered here? He passed my door and went into the room, straight in, closed the door behind him. Then he knew where to come. I waited a moment, waited for some sound, some gasp of discovery. There was none. Then he knew what to expect. I must escape quickly before he came out of that room. I started down the stairs, carefully, to avoid any sound. And suddenly the door of that room opened. The beam of a flashlight searched down the hall. I took the stairs three at a time, burst open the front door, and fled into the street, fled into the sanctuary of the fog. The first story editor on escape was a man named John Meston. John Meston went on from being story editor at CBS out of the coast to being creator of Gunsmoke. And John Meston was followed by John Dunkel, a very, very intellectual type fellow. And it was John Meston and John Dunkel who were principally responsible for the selection of the material and the acquisition of it. My hands were shaking as I raised them to my perspiring face. I held them there to... Their contribution was superb. Practically never did I disagree with them. So if you were complimenting the quality of the material on Escape, those were the two men who were responsible for it. The quality of the production was mine when I was doing it. Other people also did the show through the years. Nearby, a street lamp formed a fuzzy ball of yellow in the enveloping murk. And now a figure loomed suddenly beneath it, just as she had materialized so short a time ago under another streetlight. Or was it the same one? Was it she again? Was it he, the one who was following me? Was it real at all? Perhaps it was only a creature of my madness. My dear sir, you're ill. I... Oh, hero, uh, oh, let me help you. Why, you're almost ready to fall. Yes, sir. Thank you. Yeah, just lean on my arm. Yes. You are real, aren't you? Real? 
I don't understand. I say, you're very near collapse, you know. And I happen to be a doctor. Luckily, too, you're just outside my very house. Come in for a moment, won't you? Why, I... You're very kind. Uh, yes, I will, if it's not too much trouble for you. None at all, my dear chap. Please do. Within five minutes, I was seated in a comfortable chair before a toasting fire, sipping a hot cup of tea. I could feel my nerves relaxing, but the traces of my illness must have been clear on my face because my host observed... Your trouble is shell shock, isn't it? Why, yes, how did you know? I've been in the service, and I'm a doctor. Of course, I I only meant I'm supposed to be recovered, or almost, but... uh, I got lost in the fog, felt ill suddenly. Terrified, you know. I know. You should never have been out on a night like this. If you've got far to go, you'd better let me put you up. You're very kind, very kind indeed, but I I don't want to be in any trouble. No trouble at all. I'd like to be of help. It's the least we veterans can do for each other. Oh, the blasted war. Thank goodness it's over. You're not English, are you? No, Canadian. I haven't been demobilized yet. I'm still in the army hospital at Regent's Park under the care of Dr. Henry. Ah, yes, yes. Very good man. I'd say he's done well by you. Up till tonight, I mean. Yes. Of course, we had no idea there would be a fog. I I still get in a panic when I feel all alone. Well, that's usual, but then there was something more than that tonight, wasn't there? What do you mean? Simply that you've had rather a severe shock quite recently, haven't you? How did you know that? My dear chap, I'm a doctor. My business to know. You were in much too agitated a state when I found you for me to suppose it could have been done simply by the fog. And uh, if I may hazard another guess, I should say it would be a relief to you and, and wise as well if you could unburden yourself to someone who would understand. Am I not right? Someone who would understand? That's just it. I doubt if there is anyone like that. It's so incredible. Oh, the more incredible, the greater your need to tell it. Repression in cases like yours can be dangerous, as as you must know. You think you've hidden it, but it bides its time and it comes up later causing a lot of trouble. Confession, you know. Confession is good for the soul. Yes, I suppose you are right. But it is so wildly unbelievable. Since we're strangers, my belief or disbelief can make no difference. And I think I can promise you in advance that I shall believe all you have to say. Well, but I've got to tell somebody about it soon anyway. Cigarette uh, to help with telling? Thank you. Thank you. The success of any series has to do... With the charisma that the leading character has. He can give it the best stories and the best production in the world and the best support in the world. And if the guy or the gal does not have it, it isn't going to make it. And he can get by with a minimum of all of those things if whoever it is has the lead causes people to say, hey, come on, let's tune in on old so-and-so tonight. My God, I sure like to see how he's going to whip all those bad guys, you know. It's charisma, that's all, and I can't define it. I don't know what it is, what causes it, what causes the lack of it. 
Some people have it, some people don't, that's all. Please don't think that I am uh, an egomaniac. Uh, I stand back and look at this. I've been on the other side for so long that I can evaluate quite clearly without being involved emotionally or ego-wise. Except for a short sponsorship from the Richfield Oil Company between April and August in 1950, CBS never did find sponsorship for Escape. During its erratic seven-year run, it was shifted and dropped frequently. It developed into an experimental training ground for those who'd come to dominate radio in the next decade. Go in the daytime, return before dark. No danger of getting lost. Should be simple. Nothing to it. Do you good. Then this means I'm getting better. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Ladies and gentlemen, a good morning to you. This is John Cameron Swayze in the NBC newsroom in New York. The threat of a fuel oil shortage because of the threatened strike of tugboat workers in New York City's harbor is a very real one this morning. Agreement satisfactory to the union members has not been reached between negotiators, and the strike deadline is midnight tonight. Continuous sessions will be held today with a city labor representative in an effort to avoid the walkout. Here in the United States, in the labor news, the first day of the cables workers' strike in four companies appears to have cut down the amount of traffic that is normally handled with the Pacific. However, it apparently did not reduce the flow of transatlantic messages, as the companies say supervisory employees were able to handle all traffic. In Boston, the strike of some 6,000 AFL truck drivers is now in its third day, and there are no signs of settlement. Virtually the only truck traffic is that of food, fuel, and medical supplies. 450 companies are involved. In Manila, the gasoline shortage has been eased through an at least temporary settlement of the strike of major oil company employees. An overnight speaker in this country was the Navy's Director of Public Relations, Rear Admiral Felix Johnson. And the Admiral told the graduating class at Annapolis that the public should get all the information possible without violating security. It's up to us to tell the taxpayers what is being done with their money. As morning dawned on January 1st, 1948, the United States was wrought with labor strife. The post-Christmas blizzard only exasperated the issue. The radio industry was struck as well. On January 1st, James C. Petrillo, president of the American Federation of Musicians, instituted a nationwide ban on music recording. 
The ban was aimed at a provision in the Taft-Hartley Act, which criminalized the union's collection of money from members for services that are not performed. It made the AFM's unemployed musicians slush fund illegal. To make matters worse, week over week consumer inflation was reaching highs not seen in modern U.S. history. Now for our morning travels. First to the Capitol for Arthur Barrio in Washington. It's pretty early in the morning to begin tossing percentages around, but the old fractions and decimals are playing a very active role in our lives. So today we have the cold fact that in the week ending December 27th, wholesale prices of 900 commodities rose three-tenths of one percent. That's the eighth straight week that the price curves on the wall charts have headed toward the ceiling. And now we stand within two and a half percent of the all-time high of May 1920. Food prices, we're told, dropped two-tenths of one percent the same week, but that still doesn't provide for a display of steaks on the bargain basement counters. And because steaks and chops are still high, Agriculture Secretary Anderson thinks we'll all be asking for meat rationing within the next few months. Anderson hopes that meat and meat alone will come under a new coupon regime, and that meat rationing will cause the prices of other foods to behave themselves. The reasons for high prices of meat? Well, Anderson says there's only one answer, a big demand. Otherwise, this morning, we're having the calm before the storm. Congress comes back Tuesday, and House Speaker Martin has caused visions of tax cuts, a short-range foreign aid program, and extension of rent control to whirl round our heads. Martin says the House will probably pass a tax reduction bill this month, just to let the White House know what's in the wind. But it's the cinch the Senate won't maintain so fast a pace. Echoing Speaker Martin's statements is House Majority Leader Halleck. Halleck told me late yesterday that tax reduction fits right into the GOP program for bringing down high prices. So the Capitol's standing by for action. This is Arthur Barrio in Washington. More news in a moment. Now, you're an announcer. As President Truman began his full-scale re-election bid, his national approval rating sat at 32%. New York's Republican Governor Thomas Dewey was positioning himself as the most serious challenger for the presidency. While in the South, Strom Thurmond was moving towards running on what would become known as a Dixiecrat ticket. Harry Truman's road to the 1948 Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia would be an arduous one. <laughs> well, of course, uh, I'm sure that many people don't realize that they listened to your voice for many years when radio was the entertainment medium. You were so many of the uh, top characters in the soap opera field, especially. And Ed, I suppose you can tell us. Yes, uh, Jan has been on about everything. I guess you've been on all uh, a lot of the nighttime shows and about all the soaps, I believe. At mm -hmm. one time or another, you either played a principal part or else you came in and uh, maybe did a, a short stretch right. with any of the major soaps that were done on radio. So you've covered all of them, really. Jan, we take a special pride in you because you were with WTIC for a number of years yes. before going to New York. You were doing a, a woman's show. Yes, I, I don't remember what we called it, a woman's day. I can't quite remember the title of the show, but well, I was on every day at WTIC with George Bow as the announcer. Now, had you any acting experience? Well, I'd been in Boston for five or six years before that. I'd gotten my equity card working with E.E. E. Clive and Alan B. Holmes and at the Copley Theater. Well, when did you decide that 
you were going to be a part of what you were listening to on the network line, as it were. The, well, the soap actually, operas. I don't know if I thought about radio per se. I thought about acting. Oh. And that was, of course, when I was about seven or eight and played the son in a school play. Came up like, you know, like a dewdrop and <laughs> did a little dancing, and somebody said, Oh, look, you know. And I didn't realize I was chosen to be the son because I was the fattest girl. And I thought it was because I, you know, was very sunshiny. Mm -hmm. So I played that at school and <laughs> considered myself very sunshiny. At 11.45 a.m. Eastern Time on New Year's Day, Laura Lawton was back on NBC to continue the saga surrounding her estranged husband, Peter. And in her photograph studio, Laura's arranging her equipment, her camera, and her lights. While her friend, Joe Barney, stands beside her saying, Everything there, Laura? Yes, Joe, everything. Don't you feel a little strange going into the penthouse as a photographer and not as Mrs. Peter Carver? Possibly, Joe. I hadn't given it much thought. I think I give more thought to this whole situation than you do. I think you do. Laura. Yes, Joe? What would you do if Peter Carver showed up there this afternoon? He isn't going to. Madame Prunier swore he wasn't, and May Case would have gotten it out of someone if she weren't telling the truth. I said if he were there, Laura. I don't know, Joe. What could I do? You could run away. I haven't had much luck straightening out my life by running away from the situation, Joe. I'm where I am right now because I ran away. How do you mean? Well, this whole situation began when I believed an ugly story about Peter. I didn't face Peter with it. I believed it and ran away from him. Ran all the way to Europe. Mm. Fate's a nasty girl. Why? Because she dragged me into it, put me on your plane, made you work for the war fields or friends of mine, tied my life up with yours in tough little knots I can't untie. Dear Joe. However, go on. Tell me more about what you do if Peter is there. It's so silly to talk like this, Joe. I, I'd stay and take Madame Prunier's photograph. That's what I was asked to do. That's what I'm being paid to do, and that's what I'll do. And then? Look, anything that's done, or that, that would be done, would be up to Peter. How do you mean? Well, I couldn't run to him and throw my arms about him, Joe. I'd want to if he were there. How I'd want to, but... Well, why wouldn't you? He'd die of embarrassment, for one thing. Even if he loved me, he'd die of embarrassment. And... Not loving me, he'd be cold and superior, and I'd... Joe, um, don't let's talk about it. What would you be? You'd be humiliated, wouldn't you? Hurt and crushed and... Joe, why are you saying all this? What's the matter with you? Nothing. Look, I'd like to get there early for the picture taking. I'm not expected till five, but... I'll go with you. <laughs> I hoped you'd say that, Joe. I'm going to say a lot more, Laura. Joe. Oh, I'm not going to whine about loving you and wishing you'd divorce him and marry me. I won't bore you with oh, that. it doesn't bore me, Joe. It's just that I hate you to be miserable. I hate you to be miserable, Laura. And I can't stand seeing you hurt. And you may be today. Joe. Laura, I have to tell you this. And I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but because I love you, I want to help you. I want to spare you. Well, Joe, in heaven's name, get to the point. What is it? What is it? He's going to be there. Oh, Peter? Yes. Oh, no. Yes, Laura. I found it out from one of the maids. I had a hunch. It's all a plot, Laura, to bring you together. Joe. Oh, Joe. 
Let me sit down. Laura, I didn't know if I should tell you or not. I didn't know what to do. Oh, thank you for telling me, Joe. Thank you for worrying about I asked me. what you'd do so I'd know what to do about telling you. Yes, yes, of course. Was I wrong? I don't know, Joe. I'm, I'm trying to think. I'm trying desperately to think. Poor Laura. Poor Peter. He doesn't know, I'm sure. Why must you worry about Peter? Does he worry about you? Love isn't like that, Joe. You don't love people as much as they love you or as little. Your loving is separate and distinct from that of the person you love. You have so much love to give it has no bearing on what's returned to you. You're so right there, Laura. Well, you know it, Joe, surely. Oh, my dear. You know it to your sorrow, surely. You love me, and the fact that I have no love to give you doesn't diminish yours for me at all. It's there. A wonderful, fine thing that honors me, Joe. And just as I can't stop loving Peter. What do you want to do, Laura? I'll back you whatever it is. Thank you. I'm going, of course. I'll stand by. <laughs> With a big, broad shoulder for me to weep on. Joe, you're good. You're too darn good. Now, later at the penthouse, Madame Prunier seats herself on the beautiful fire bench before the magnificent fireplace. And Peter Carver looks at her, saying, Very beautiful, madame. Oh, thank you, Peter. Why are you so nervous? Well, I'm a bit nervous. You're quivering. Surely some little photographer from a fashion magazine isn't going to frighten you. Oh, heavens no, Peter. What time will he come? Five. I said five, Peter. Well, then relax. Everybody else will be here before that, won't they? Yes. Who do you suppose gave Gail a sick headache? Terribly annoying, you know. Nerves, I guess. Oh, rubbish. I think she's sulking about Laura. You know, people who attempt to run other people's lives make up the world's worst nuisances. Oh, uh, do you think so? I do think so. I... Oh, who's that? It's much too early for a guest, surely. Yes, it is early. Oh, Hodge is answering it. What was I saying? Do you suppose I'm nervous too, madame? How silly. How very silly. Hello, Hodge. I came early to see that everything was all right. Uh, Mr. Barney's going to help me. Oh, what's the matter, Hodge? Aren't you well? Hodge is stunned at Laura's appearance, and for once, unprepared. What'll be the outcome of the meeting between Peter Carver and his wife, Laura Lawton? Start off 1948 having better friends, being a better friend. Send today for Laura's exciting New Year's friendship offer. Full-color deluxe Stony Book Remembrance Cards, plus Laura's own birthday and anniversary book, yours at a tremendous saving. You get birthday cards, anniversary cards, cards that say congratulations and get well. On every occasion, they'll express your friendship and love. Yes, and think how convenient having them handy when you want them. And Laura's own 32-page birthday and anniversary book will always remind you of every special occasion. 
To get your set of eight remembrance cards with envelopes plus the birthday and anniversary book, simply get a can of Babo. Cut the word Babo out of the green label, mail it with your name and full address and only 25 cents a quarter to Laura Lawton, Box 76, New York City 8. Or send the dollar bill with the word Babo and get 40 cards with the book. That way you save even more. The address again, Laura Lawton, L-A-W-T-O-N, Box 76, New York City 8. Supply Limited, send today. will be on the air at the same time tomorrow. Ford Bond speaking for B.T. Babbitt Incorporated, makers of Babbo. When you make your own soap, use Lycon. What happened between Laura and Peter? I guess we'll just have to tune in yesterday to find out. Tournament of Roses and Warner Pathé News presents the first color newsreel pictures of this event in Cinecolor. Led by the Grand Marshal, General Omar Bradley and Mrs. Bradley, the parade gets underway. Almost two million people pack the five-mile route of the procession. All hail the Queen of the Tournament of Roses, 18-year-old Virginia Goodhue, who extends royal greetings to all. Clear the track for the Playland Unlimited... At 1.45 Pacific Time, from KFI in Los Angeles, NBC broadcast the 34th annual Rose Bowl game. It featured the heavily favored Michigan Wolverines against the USC Trojans. Even the 93,000 in attendance couldn't have predicted the route which ensued. Michigan won 49 to nothing, tying the Rose Bowl record for most points scored. In striking contrast to this jet-propelled sky streak, on they come, each rivaling the others in beauty and profusion of color. The game was aired by local television station KTLA. It was the first telecast of a bowl game in the greater Los Angeles area. But with it being New Year's Day, it's a good time to hear some of the stories about the sports press wars of the late 1930s from broadcasting legend and CBS alumni, Mel Allen. There's a saying old says that love is blind. CBS had an exclusive on the Poughkeepsie Regatta. And NBC, you know, competitive as they are, all networks are, all stations are, they sent Graham McNamee up in an airplane to swipe it from the air on the theory that CBS only had an exclusive on the ground rights and not the air rights. Mm -hmm. So the following week, CBS had an exclusive on the Drake Relays out in Des Moines, Iowa, or NBC did, and just to get even, CBS assigned Ted to go out there and climb up on a telephone pole and with field glasses cop the Drake relays from NBC that way. And additionally, it happened that Long Island was just full of sports activities that day. 
the prime event was the Vanderbilt Cup races. So they decided to send me up in an airplane, and I had never flown before, number one. I just scared to death about that. In fact, I went up for the trial run for the short wave technicians trying out their short wave from being up in the air down below. And NBC had it exclusively down below. To uh, make it appear that we weren't trying to swipe it from them, there was a state tennis match going on out there. There were sailboat races going on out in the sound. So we went up in the plane, went on the air. This is Mel Allen speaking to you on behalf of the Columbia Network. In the Eastern Airlines plane, which they donated for the plug, and now they got a second one years <laughs> later. Long Island is the mecca of the sports world today, and I was talking about all these other events except the automobile race, but this is what we finally got to. We timed it. We knew what time they were supposed to take off. I cut out of the New York Times the lineup of the automobiles, just as you'll have in the 500-mile race. Three cars to a line, 11 lines deep, 11 rows deep, 33 cars. I had done other uh, homework during the week when I found out about it, but the only actual script I had was just simply the lineup of cars. But I had done a lot of reading about it, and I knew that there were certain hairpin turns in the race, dangerous, and in the event of rain, that they were going to postpone it from the Saturday, it was scheduled to the following Monday. Now, McNamee is on the ground, and I'm up in the air. And I was really up in the air because at the scheduled time, none of those cars moved. I can see what and you we, mean. And we keep circling and circling. And finally, the producer slipped me a note, said, I guess we better go down. Something must be wrong. So we went down, and sure enough, they'd called the race off. But we had no way of knowing it. Well, it turned out I had been on the air ad-libbing some 52 minutes. And some vice president at CBS was listening and wanted to know who that was doing that. And that's how you get a break. So that's as I can say, you have to be at the right place at the right time. <laughs> well, I guess you But were. you have to be a little bit prepared, too. I'll have to add that for the benefit of folks who want to get into this business. Hollywood's Open House. Taken from the pages of the nation's foremost screen publication, Motion Picture Magazine. Starring Enrique Madrigal, his violin and his orchestra, featuring Hollywood's comic star, Rags Ragland, with an all-star supporting cast and yours truly, Jim Amici. 
And our very extra special guest, the incomparable Hildegard. As Hollywood's open house featuring Jim Amici signed on NBC at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, the four major networks had every reason to celebrate. In the past five years, total radio revenue had almost doubled. 97% of the nation's AM stations were now linked to one of the big four. NBC, ABC, and CBS would use the profits to launch full force into the television era. On New Year's Day in 1947, there were only 12,000 TV sets in the U.S. By New Year's Day 1951, there were 10 million. Jack Benny handled radio as good or better than anybody, than any of the comedians. Because he knew just the things that he did. He made use of, of, of pauses and of weights, like Jack Benny going over to Ronald Coleman's house. We, borrowed a cup of sugar, and he went over to Ronald. Well, when Jack Benny goes to Ronald Coleman's house, he goes there. He goes down eight steps, and he walks on the sidewalk, and he's carrying the cup, and after that, as a man passes him and drops ten cents in the cup, and you hear the ten cents drop, and Jack says, thank you, then he walks again, and walks up eight steps, rings the bell, there was no hurry with Jack. He, 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 he knew how to use these weights and knew how to use radio. And everything Jack Benny did, he'd hold on to. He had the Maxwell car and, and he had the bear. Well, I forget the bear's name. And he'd do things like when he went down into the vault and he had this crocodile down there. Or the man living there for 60 years that never, you know, the most, the worst, but he, it, it was fun. Uh, another cup of Maxwell House coffee, George. Sure. Pour me a cup, Gracie. You know, Maxwell House is always good to the last drop. And that drop's good, too. Yes, it's Maxwell House coffee time, starring George Burns and Gracie Allen. At 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time, live from Los Angeles. Burns and Allen signed on for Maxwell House. With it being the new year, George Burns and Jack Benny both resolved to be taken seriously as musicians. And for America's everyday coffee-drinking enjoyment, it's Maxwell House. Always good to the last drop. Life is a funny thing. Upon some men it bestows fame, fortune, and success, yet cruelly withholds from them the thing they long for most of all. In the city of Beverly Hills, California, live two such men, Jack Benny and George Burns. Each apparently successful, yet nursing in his heart a secret, unfulfilled ambition. What is Jack Benny's ambition? His dream? Listen. Gee, when is the world going to recognize me for what I really am? A concert violinist. <laughs> Mr. Benny, Mr. Benny, please. The violin lesson is over. Now may I have my money? Uh, Professor LeBlanc, uh, tell me something honestly. 
what do you think of my playing? Now, be frank. You want the truth? Yes. First, give me the money for the lesson. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm tired of being the comedian, the clown, the pagliacci. Please, Monsieur Benny, I must go. Get the money out. Sure, it's brought me fame and riches, but when you're not happy, what good is gold? It's turned a lead in my pocket. Monsieur Benny, please, get the lead out. <laughs> If I could only be a concert <laughs> And just a few blocks from this scene of frustration, we find the other man, George Burns. What is his secret ambition? Listen. Boom, 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 down in the garden. Honey, oh, mine, I love you so. Love me like a flower, don't. See, Gracie, if only the world would recognize my singing voice. Well, it does, George. Everyone recognizes your singing voice. Really? Well, sure. It's after they recognize it that the trouble starts. <laughs> if for some reason my voice just doesn't seem to sell. Oh, lots of people think it does. Think it sells? Oh, Sal! <laughs> oh, what fools they are. You have a beautiful voice. You really think so? Oh, yes. You sound like a nightingale flew down your throat and built a nest there. <laughs> but I never get a chance. Yeah, I know, dear. Just like Jack Benny with his violin. Yeah. Look at that, that party we went to the other night with Jack. When I started to sing, what happened? They tried to drown you out. Yeah. Only it's worse than it sounds. They tried to drown you out in the swimming pool. <laughs> well, thank goodness Jack started to play about that time. His violin was really a lifesaver. Oh, yes. When they threw that in the pool, it gave you both something to hang on to. <laughs> Why won't people take our music seriously? Well, George, they won't accept Jack as a violinist because they think of him as a great comedian. And they won't accept you as a singer because they think of you as a great... Uh, whatever it is you are. A pickle salesman. It's so unfair, Sell George. rhubarb on the side. Uh, there were you... There were you and Jack... Did you care for a little horseradish? No, George. <laughs> Jack loaded with musical talent and all the crowd wanted to hear were those gypsy entertainers. Well, those gypsies were good. Not one bit better than you. I'll bet if you and Jack had been disguised as gypsies, the crowd would have... George! That's it. Huh? Why don't you and Jack disguise yourselves as gypsies and put on a concert? Now, wait a Oh, minute. it's a great idea. If people don't know that you're George Burns and Jack Betty, they might like you. Well, thanks Now, Jack could be a gypsy violinist And you could be a gypsy troubadour When a gypsy makes his violin cry Oh, you gypsy When you sing, you'll not only make the violin cry You'll make the whole orchestra ball 
Oh, maybe you've got something with the gypsy idea. Oh, sure. Let's go talk to Jack about it. People go for gypsies because they're romantic vagabonds. They've been roaming the earth for hundreds of years. Do you think Jack and I can put it over? Absolutely. If I ever saw two men who look like they've been roaming the earth for hundreds of years, it's you and Jack. <laughs> Come on, let's go over and talk to Jack. Well, what do you think of the idea, Jack? I can't do it, Gracie. When I achieve recognition as a violin player, I'll do it on one thing and one thing alone. Talent. Jack, it's a great idea. I'm sorry, George. I will not deceive my public by disguising myself as a ridiculous gypsy. Jack, Jack, you can make a barrel of money. Money? Yes. If we're gypsies? Yes. thought so. Anyway, it's not a cheat, you know. You know, I do have some gypsy blood in my veins. Oh, really, Jack? Yeah, of course. I only have a drop or two. Oh. How much of it is gypsy? The drop or two is gypsy. I have more. (laughs) See, my, uh, my father... My father ran a gypsy tea room back in Waukegan. <laughs> Sam Benny's Romany Rendezvous and Delicatessen. <laughs> My mother used to go around at the tables and read the rye crisps. <laughs> yes, I remember. Uh, yes. Say, Jack, you and George can be gypsy brothers. Oh, do we have to be brothers? Well, brother acts are so popular in the theater. There's the uh, the Marx brothers and the Ritz brothers and the Mayo brothers. The Mayo brothers are in the theater? Well, they must be. People always talk about going to the Mayo brothers for an opening. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, Abe Lasfogel handles their knives. Oh. You know... You know, I'm glad you had this idea, Gracie. It sounds exciting, romantic. The Mysterious Gypsy Brothers. (laughs) We'll rent the biggest hall in town and give a concert. Yes, it'll be great, Jack. What if we do have to risk a little money to, you know, to put into it? Money? Yes. We risk it? Yes. I was afraid of that. Oh, wait a minute. I've got an idea. We'll get someone else to put up the money, huh? Someone else? Yeah. You mean we won't risk anything? Not a cent. you boys home to try on these gypsy costumes. Here, you spread this dark makeup on your faces while I finish curling your hair. 
Gracie, is this necessary? Of course, Jack. All gypsies have curly hair. Well, okay. There. Now, Jack, your hair is done. Put it back on. <laughs> Gee, it feels good. Still warm. And now, George, I'll put a few waves in your hair, and then we'll put on the earrings. Earrings? earrings? Well, certainly all gypsies wear earrings. Now, hold still, Jack. Hey, Gracie, these look like the gold earrings I gave Mary for Christmas. They are. She insisted you wear them. Well, how sweet. She wants to see how you look with green ears. <laughs> look, these earrings happen to be solid gold. Some appreciation I get. She doesn't even keep them clean. They're all sticky. Well, Mary says that was on there when you gave them to her. It's from the Cracker Jacks. <laughs> I'll be careful to wash off her birthday present before I give it to her. Now, George, you put these other earrings on and uh, this sash. Okay. And, Jack, here are some beads to go around your neck. And now we'll put this scarf around your head. There. I feel like Carmen Miranda. Well, you look wonderful. Come in. Hi, Gracie. Hello, Bill. I just dropped by to say hello and... and uh... Who are the two old babes? <laughs> oh, fine. Well, they're gypsies, Bill. Oh, oh, gypsy fortune tellers? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, read my palm, honey. Look, look, I'm Jack Benny. <laughs> Quit kidding, you're a gypsy fortune teller. Now, read my palm. I tell you, I, I, I can't read your palm. I'm Jack Benny. Come on, honey, read my palm and I'll give you 50 cents. I see a tall, dark woman <laughs> She looks like Davy Marie. <laughs> hand over my money, handsome. Look, Bill, yes. this is really Jack Benny and I'm George. We're going to give a gypsy concert. Oh. With that sad gypsy, gypsy music. Let's show him, Jack. Okay. Uh, are you... <laughs> Are you, are you holding anything back? No. <laughs> oh, Chicharnia. <laughs> oh, Chisrasnia. That back 15 years. Bill, huh? isn't that sad? Sad, it's miserable. <laughs> you know, Gracie, I think it would look flashy if I had some gold rings on my fingers when I play. I've given Mary a couple of beautiful ones. See if you can borrow them. Oh, that will look flashy. Green fingers to match your ears. I'll be right back. Hey, Bill. Jack and I will be a sensation if we can just get some publicity. Well, I know a newspaper reporter. Uh, I'll send him over for a story. Oh, thanks, Bill. And we'll give you a pair of complimentary tickets to our concert, right in the front row. Well, Jack, uh, 
I'd rather sit in the balcony. But, Bill, you can bring your girl. You see, if you sit in the front row, she can appreciate my technique. Well, if we sit in the balcony, she can appreciate mine. <laughs> Just send the report. Nearly every good comedian has good timing. They, they couldn't be good without it. Burns has great timing. Ed Wynn had the greatest. Gracie Allen had probably the great. She was the great of all time when it came to timing. You have to have real good timing or you can't exist as a comedian. Starring Al Jolson with Oscar Levant, Lou Bring and his orchestra and chorus, and our guest, Madeline Carroll. So keep on looking for a bluebird and listening for its song. Whenever April a shower Good evening, folks. This is Al Jolson and the old Kraft Musical. Well, they haven't had time to write any new songs so far this year. So here's a good old old one. Come on, Lou, let me have it, son. I found my love. In the mid-1940s, Al Jolson's career hit a low point. He'd spent only one season as host of his own radio program since 1939, when his Colgate toothpaste program was canceled in June of 1943. In 1946, Columbia filmed a biography of his life. Larry Parks played the young Jolson, but Jolson's voice was used in the soundtrack. The film won two Oscars, and again, he was a hot property. Jolson was soon doing so many radio guest spots that it became a running gag amongst comedians. With Kraft's rating in a tailspin following Bing Crosby's departure for ABC, Jolson was a wise investment. Kraft signed the star for $7,500 per week, and the Music Hall was once again Thursday's ratings winner, with a 23.5 in January of 1948. take this opportunity to wish you a happy new year. Thank you, Ken, and same to you. You know, I, I kind of hated to see 1947 go by, because every year is like an old friend. You have a lot of old friends, don't you? <laughs> Ken, that is hardly the way to start the new year. <laughs> I'm sorry, Al. I know I shouldn't have said it. It was wrong for me to mention anything about your age on New Year's Day. Then why did you do it? Well, how many announcers have a chance to work with Father Time himself? <laughs> Always talking about Crosby. Well, anyway... <laughs> Ken, sorry you couldn't come to the wonderful New Year's party I had at my house. I'm sorry, sir. All my friends dropped in, and we had the bestest time. I suppose you served a little nip to your guests? Oh, yeah, yes, sir. 
We had a little nippy cheese. <laughs> I was thinking of something a little stronger. Oh, we had that too. We had cheddar cheese. No, no, no. No, Al, I mean, what did you serve to drink? Melted cheese. <laughs> There's a guy who knows which side his bread is cheesed on. <laughs> Excuse me, Ken. Well, Oscar, how was New Year's Eve at your house, huh? We didn't do anything about the New Year. No? Prices are so high, we just had the old one dry clean. Well, ain't that cute? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, didn't you, uh, didn't you celebrate at all? No, I just wanted to sit home and read a book Really? But there wasn't a good book in the house Honestly, but what'd you do? I wrote one and read it Oh <laughs> Well, son, come here If you ever want to buy any books, I got plenty of them Who wants to read bank books? <laughs> I do Listen <laughs> Oscar, that was no way to spend New Year's Eve Why didn't you go to a New Year's party someplace, you know? I don't like them The people get too rowdy Yeah? Last year I went to a party And a woman blew a horn Right in my ear No I had an awful time Getting it out It's <laughs> a good thing The woman didn't play the piano Now, uh <laughs> The only thing I like About New Year's Is the Rose Bowl game Oh, you say Yes, sir I, I saw it On the television set Backstage in the music hall And Oscar You want to know something? I think I know Why Michigan beat USC The California players they're too movie-conscious Movie-conscious? I didn't get that feeling I saw it I saw it Every time they went by the television cameras They stopped to fix their makeup <laughs> <laughs> Now, Oscar, you fix your makeup And go over to that Mr. Steinway's piano It was the first coast-to-coast -coast broadcast I ever did And it was with the Marx Brothers mm -hmm. From Hollywood the RCA studios, they broadcast from there. I think it was NBC Now, did you do a lot of network roles from the coast Or did you move to New York? No, I did many network shows until 1939, and then I moved to New York, yes. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Why did you move to New York? It would seem to me that Hollywood would be the center for actors. We had great respect for New York actors. The theory was that if you could make a go in New York, you could make it anywhere in the world. This was the absolute top, and I was very impressed with the town. Unfortunately, I don't feel quite the same way today, <laughs> but I was very impressed. And so it was an idea of moving to the big city. I was a bachelor then, and I was, oh, you know, it didn't matter much where I was. So I decided to try New York. Well, we're going to hear one of your best roles. As a matter of fact, Ed, you're the uh, historian here. How long did John Gibson play Ethelbert in Casey Crime Photographer? I would guess about 11 years. Is that uh, right, John? Uh I say nine. Mm -hmm. I Stott Cotsworth, who played Casey 99% of the time, was, uh, I think he said 10 or 11. 10 or 11. Well, Set the scene, This uh, particular show is the one I think that you're most remembered for. That length of time, you played the role of Ethelbert, the bartender. We'll hear a little piano music in the background. That's, That's right. Uh, right. Herman Chittison, wasn't it? The Blue Note pianist? Herman Chittison first, and then Teddy Wilson later. The Anchor Hawking Glass Corporation brings you Crime Photographer. <laughs> Uh, happy New Year, Casey. Happy New Year, Ethelbert. Same to you, Marvin. Say, you know this 1948 is going to be a great year. Why so? Well, don't you know? It's leap year. And just what can leap year mean to you? Why, I'm surprised at you, Ethelbert. Don't you know that that means an extra Thursday? So what? So what? That extra Thursday gives me an extra chance to say that Anchor Hawking is the most famous name 
in class. At 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time from New York, Casey, Ann Williams, Ethelbert, and Tony Marvin could be found where they could be found on both Thanksgiving and Christmas at work. This episode of Crime Photographer involves an arson, manslaughter, kidnapping, and all taking place in the wee hours of the morning on January 1st. Hot New Year's party. nine on the morning of New Year's Day. And to some people, that hour on that day can be very bleak and dismal. Ethelbert, the head bartender of the Blue Note Cafe, is obviously not one of those unfortunate. For we find him in the morning. Oh, what a beautiful thing. Hi, Walter. Uh, bring up two more bottles of aspirin. They're going to be our best sellers today. Okay. Oh, what a beautiful... Well, look who's here. Happy New Year, Casey. And the same to you, Miss Williams. Hmm. What's the matter with you two? Ask Walter to bring us a couple of cups of coffee, pal. Strong and black. Uh Uh-uh. And slip me an aspirin tablet. Make that a double order. Uh Uh-huh. Hey, Walter, draw two. Come on. What time is Chittison doing here? Practicing at this hour in the morning? He couldn't get home on account of the snow. He slept here all night. Oh. Here's some special headache medicine for you to stay out all night. We haven't been stay out all night. I know. Like good, sensible folks, you left the party early, just before daylight. And then you got all of an hour's sleep before you had to come to work on an 8 a.m. shift. He's a wise guy, Annie. Yeah. You should have been like me. I wasn't on duty last night, but did I spend my leisure time in idle revelry? I did not. At 12 o'clock, my sister Edna and me wished one another a happy new year over a glass of good, healthful milk. Then I retired and enjoyed a fine, refreshing sleep. So, on this beautiful morning, you find me full of vim, vigor, and vitamins. Have another aspirin on the house. Shall I kill this guy quickly and... Listen, vim, vigor, and vitamins, the reason Miss Williams and I feel beat up is that ever since a few minutes after we reported for work this morning, we've been inhaling smoke. There was another warehouse fire this morning, near Chatham Circle. That's the only New Year's party we've attended, and it was a red-hot one, too. Bad fire, huh? Yeah, plenty bad. Oh, here's Walter with our coffee. Oh, thanks, Walter. Happy New Year. (laughs) Boys, it's welcome, too. Thanks, Walter. Okay. Your papers kind of hinted that them warehouse fires lately have been arson jobs, Miss Williams. Oh, we're morally certain of it, Ethelbert, and that Jake Schultz is the man behind them. He and his mob make a deal with the owners of them places to split the fire insurance, huh? That's right. That's the racket. Skinny Jake Schultz is a pretty smart cookie, I hear. Neither the cops or the fire inspectors has ever got anything on him. Well, if he's behind the torch job we just covered, he isn't so smart. This one lets somebody in for a hot seat wrap. What do you mean? Well, the fire was set at night and there was a human being in the building, an old watchman. 
That means arson in the first degree. The watchman got out all right, but a fireman was killed by falling timbers. And when death is caused through commission of first-degree arson, it becomes first-degree murder. And a reliable witness says that he saw three men run out of the warehouse a few minutes before the fire was discovered. He's uh, given the police a first-class description of them. Was one of them Schultz? No, of course not. Dick doesn't do any firebug stuff himself. If one of those three guys is caught and sings, uh, it's just going to be too bad for his boss, man. Annie, how about some more coffee? Mm-hmm. No, we don't have time, Casey. No, We've right. got to get out to Barstow College. Well, there's no hurry about that. Yes, we don't there know. is. City desk wants the dope on Professor Wendell right away. Well, who's Professor Wendell and what, what's he done? Oh, he's a teacher at Barstow College. He went for a walk last night and he hasn't come back. Uh, now, the professor who shares an apartment with Wendell just reported his disappearance to the Missing Persons Bureau. Well, he thinks the guy has met with foul play? That's right. Yeah. Well, if we must, we must, Danny. Come on, let's get started at Professor Gerber's place. But this Professor Gerber's the one who reported the mysterious vanishing of this Professor Wendell. That's huh? right. After we waste our time with him, Wendell will undoubtedly show up with a perfectly good reason for staying out all night. Well, I'm perfectly willing to waste time on such cases today. I'd like to start the new year safely and sanely. Me too, Annie, me too. To establish a precedent for 1948, no jams and no trouble, nothing but peace, sweetness, and light. (laughs) Instead of just a hope, why don't you two make that a new year's resolution? Well, that's a good idea, pal. Excellent. We here highly resolve... That for the coming year... And starting now... No jams... No trouble... Nothing but peace, sweetness, and light. Professor Wendell and I have shared this apartment for over five years, Miss Williams, ever since he lost his wife. I know him, and I... By January 1st, 1948, John Gibson, Stats Cotsworth and Jan Miner were three of the busiest character actors on radio. It wasn't uncommon, let's put it this way, to do ten shows in one day or Mm -hmm. one 24-hour period. That was because you pre-recorded five episodes of a series, usually 15-minute episodes. You would record, like, most of the day to make all of the recordings for the next week. And then, in the evening, you might record five again of another series. Mm -hmm. So... Ten shows in a day was no great record. Many people did it. My record, I think, was seven separate shows on three or four different networks (laughs) in one day. And it included everything from crime photographer to a show with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis to a thing about Babe Ruth to narrating something for the community chess program plus a couple of episodes of daytime soap opera type things. Now, what about rehearsals? How did you get a chance to rehearse, for example, if you were traveling from one show to another? Well, the rules were, the union rules were, that you had to hire a stand-in if you couldn't be there. So oh, you, you hired another actor and you paid him to be there and to play your role. Sometimes you had two or three actors stationed around town <laughs> playing roles for you. And so I had to get out and run like mad <laughs> across town and run into the studio and grab the microphone <laughs> and my script and go on the air. It was frightening. We'll join the crowd of the Blue Note in just a moment. You know, tonight we're nearing the end of the holiday season. And to those of you who are exhausted, here's a suggestion. A good hot cup of coffee which you can prepare in an instant, without fuss, without work, and without waiting even a minute. Now I'm talking about soluble coffee, the amazing scientific discovery which makes really delicious coffee available at a moment's notice. 
Now, all you need is a cup, a spoon, and a glass jar. The sanitary, convenient anchor glass jar in which most of the better packers of soluble coffee bring you their products. The anchor glass jar opens quickly and simply. There's no trouble in measuring, no waste from spilling, and even more important, Glass jars protect the flavor and freshness of soluble coffee against moisture long after they're opened. You'll be delighted by the delicious soluble coffees now on the market, particularly those that come to you in convenient anchor glass containers sealed with anchor caps, both products of anchor hawking. The most famous name in glass. you took of Professor Wendell after he was rescued was very different, Casey. The first time I ever saw pictures of a college professor wrapped in a blanket, he looked just like an Indian. <laughs> <laughs> professor Wendell didn't like to have him taken that way, Ethelbert, even though Casey was responsible for his rescue. He was uh, kind of burned up. Yeah, he wasn't as burned up as Jake Schultz and his hired firebugs are going to be. No, they're facing murder and kidnapping charges. And with plenty of evidence to back them up. <laughs> yeah, as the result of Casey busting some nice New Year's resolutions, Miss Williams. Hmm. Yeah. A safe and sane 1948. You've started swell. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Wendell. Let's enlarge the idea. And no kidding. You've got something there, Ethelbert. All right, all together. Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year to, to everyone. To everyone. <laughs> Well, the funny part of radio is you often performed many colorful roles and many colorful scripts, but in a plain, drab studio. So there's nothing visual to remember. It's all mental. It's all in your memory. Whereas if you had worked in a motion picture, you might have been out on a set out in the you know, out in the desert or somewhere, mm -hmm. and you would remember it because of that. But year after year, as you worked in radio, it was so wonderful, all you did was wear a decent suit and carry a pencil with you. And you came in and marked your script and went to work, and then you went home. And people didn't know you, which was rather pleasant. Uh, you could go anywhere, and you weren't recognized. And if you're shy at all, and I think maybe I am a little bit, it's kind of nice. I don't think I'm second to anybody in volume of shows as an actor, mm -hmm. as a freelance actor. I do believe that I have done somewhere over 10,000 radio shows or appearances, if you want to call them or whatever, and I am still very nervous. People assume that radio was comparatively easy, as I do, standing in a well-lighted studio with a nice script in front of you and all you have to do is read the lines. Right. But you can say some awfully strange things by mistake. <laughs> Your tongue can get twisted. As you know, there have been some classic. <laughs> I Is begin it? to get the picture. You're working together this morning. Since it's Detective Clayman's first day, we'll make sure it's boring. Vince! <coughs> shit! Shit! She's black crazy! 
How was your first real ride, Leo? There was nothing like it. That was great. Nothing like a little wind in your face. <laughs> What's going on? I said, don't move. This is Unit 41 David 6. We need immediate assistance to <laughs> Jesus! Detective? Shoot him! This is Unit 41 David 8. Witnessed an illegal hunt. Shots fired. Suspect is loose. Victim is alive. Copy that. This was a direct attack on me. I agree, Vince, but can't we talk to Isaac before we make a decision? It might avoid a war. Honestly, do you think werewolves are going to hand one of their own over to us? It won't happen. We need to act on this. Jacob Stewart, Iron Oath Investigator with the Orlando office. Why would he lie to me like this? I don't know. Non-humans protect each other, Catherine. Some of the time, we all must work together to keep each other safe. Other times, we maim each other until one is left standing. It's a complicated relationship. I can tell. Listen to The Veiled Monarch at theveiledmonarch.com or find it wherever you find your favorite podcast. The Veiled Monarch is a production of Hey It's Jolly Entertainment. Remember, a Hallmark card will best express your perfect taste, your thoughtfulness. The makers of Hallmark greeting cards present The Master Swindle, starring Paul Muni. Now to preside over our program, here is your Hallmark host, Les Tremaine. At 10 o'clock Eastern Time on Thursday nights, CBS's programming strategy was in full effect. Opposite Bob Hawke on NBC, CBS program Radio Reader's Digest, sponsored by Hallmark Cards and hosted by Les Tremaine. On New Year's night, they adapted a story called The Master Swindle. And to play it, we had that superb actor, Paul Muni. Happy New Year, Paul, and welcome to the Hallmark program. Thank you, Les. As a matter of fact, this is the only place I'd care to be tonight, <laughs> outside of my own home. But what do you usually do New Year's night? Well, my wife and I like to spend it at home, looking over all the holiday cards we received. Making your next year's list? No, just sort of thinking about friends. Mm -hmm. But you know, Les, after listening to you so often, we got into that habit you talk about. Oh, what habit? Well, turning the greeting cards over. There must be something to it. The three words we saw most often were a hallmark card. Yes, those three little words tell your friends you cared enough to send the very best. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the makers of hallmark greeting cards bring you on the Reader's Digest radio edition a great dramatic story. We call it The Master Swindle, and our star is Mr. Paul Muni. <laughs> exhibit, Helen. If the critics are unkind to me again, I will give up painting forever. Oh, darling, you know you can't ever do that. If you gave up painting, you'd be giving up your whole life. 
Like all the men who devote their lives to painting, I'm guilty of two crimes, perhaps. A great pride in my work and an even greater ego. Oddly enough, I had a minor reputation in Holland, and I made good money as an artist. But every time my work was exhibited, the critics panned me unmercifully. So much so that my wife refused to let me see their reviews. Now, don't ask me again, Ernest. There isn't a newspaper in the house, and if there were, I would have destroyed the art reviews. Darling, you're treating me like a little baby. I'm treating you like an artist, dear, which is practically the same thing. But how can I paint if I don't know what the people think of my painting? That's the only way you can paint, Ernest. As soon as you see a review, you start breaking easels. Sweetheart, why must you deprive me of the pleasure of getting mad? Because you're a fine artist, Ernest. And these fools who say you're too commercial only set you back. What fool said I was commercial? Oh. Huss. Paul Huss. It sounds like him. He doesn't approve of my work because I see the beauty in things. Darling. That pompous little pimple. If I don't paint a nose with a wart on it, he thinks it's commercial. What else did he say? Nothing. Helen, please stop buttering me. The man has two columns in the newspaper. He can't fill it with nothing. Well, it wasn't such a bad review. He compared you with Vermeer. Yes, I can imagine... How he did it, too. Ernest Seabrandt is nothing but a cheap imitation of a mere. Well, what difference does it make what he said? It isn't what he said, dear, it's what they all say. Year after year, tearing me down, smothering me inside, and not even knowing what I'm trying to do. They'll know someday, Not these idiots. They're killing me, darling. They're killing me. These smug little men who pass sentence on what is good and what isn't. Do you think they know the difference? No. A modern artist hasn't a chance with these fakers. All they do is worship the old masters, and Holland has so many old masters, they just won't let a new one be born. They can't prevent you from being born, Ernest. A hundred years from now... Never mind about a hundred years from now. What did Haas say about me today? I'm not going to tell you. All right. Don't tell me. I'll find out for myself. Ernest, where are you going? I'm going to call on Mr. Haas in person and make him tell me to my face what is wrong with my paintings. In December of 1947, CBS won this time slot with a rating of 12.2 and helped move ABC's Mr. President, which starred Edward Arnold and Betty Lou Gerson, to a new night. It was just later on when everything became so mechanical, when they would tape everything. They taped the shows and they taped the music and they taped the sound effects and they just taped everything and they taped the heart right out of the business. Because actually, back in the old days, if you were really... Good. You used your script merely as reference. You didn't stay glued to a script. You were glued to the actor or actors you were working with. It was very, very much like the theater in that sense. I know I was always moving around. My hand was, you know, through my hair and all that sort of thing. You played the show. The lights were darkened, the lights were on you, and you did not play to the audience. You could not. You had to, in the first place, play to the mic to a certain extent so that your S's didn't hiss and you would do it at an angle. And you played to the actor, the scene with the actor. The audience was, except for your stand-up comedies, and they played directly for their lives. Now, when I worked for Ed Gardner, and of course it had an audience, Duffy's Tavern, when you moved, you moved after his laugh was dying down, and you had to be sitting down. Everyone was sitting down as that show went on. 
and he would read his line, and if he got a big laugh, and you had the next line, you had to get up from your chair and get to there and respond so that you didn't interfere with his laugh. And I seemed to be able to do that better than anybody else, so he used me a lot, and that's why he asked me to do his picture down in Puerto Rico. He was very, very strange, and the same way with Phil Harris. The actors were supposed to be invisible, except when they had a line, you know. Mr. President, starring Edward Arnold. The American Broadcasting Company and its affiliated stations present Mr. President. Mr. President, at home in the White House, the elected leader of our people, our fellow citizen and neighbor. These are little-known stories of the men who've lived in the White House, dramatic, exciting events in their lives that you and I so rarely hear, true human stories of Mr. President. Edward Arnold as Mr. President. Let's visit him in the White House. It's evening. The old mansion is resting quietly after a busy day. Only one window on the ground floor shows a light. We enter and find ourselves in the President's study. Good evening. Sit down, won't you? Isn't it strange how often the same facts look different to different people and how much trouble can come from it? That's what the president faced in tonight's story, as you'll see later on. Of course, I'll tell you which president it really happened to, but meanwhile, maybe you'll be able to guess. At the time of this story, my secretary of state was a man I'll call Martin Barrows, who never let himself get excited. But one morning, even though he appeared as calm as ever, I knew he was worried. Mr. President, I just received this dispatch from our minister in France. Even without reading it, Martin, I can tell from your face that there's trouble. You'd better read it just the same, sir. Here you are. It's short enough. Uh-huh. The government of France has failed to pay the first installment under 25 million francs due to the United States and the Secretary Treaty of last year. Hmm? And our minister in Paris wants instructions. Mm, they're, <laughs> they're obvious, aren't they? Tell them to make another effort to collect. I don't think that'll do much good, sir. Well, frankly, neither do I. We need something more, don't we? Yes, Congress has been watching this treaty ever since we negotiated it. Senator Johns especially will be very happy to hear there's trouble. Hoping we'll let the treaty lapse? I know. I see more trouble than that, Martin. On one side, Johns and the people who do a lot of trade with France. They oppose the treaty in the first place. They'll criticize any effort we make to enforce it. But we must make every effort. We must establish and maintain a strong foreign policy so that France and every other country will respect American sovereign rights. Well, no matter what we do, we'll be in hot water, sir. Well, what do you think we can do? Delay. Delay? What for? Well, surely France intends to pay. There's no real question about that. But maybe they're having some troubles of their own. If we give them a little time, everything might smooth out. I'm sorry I don't agree with you, Martin. In fact, I've got a different idea. Yes? You send a stiff note to France saying that we insist on being paid promptly. 
that we negotiated the treaty in good faith and that we can't understand their failure to The pay president here was Andrew Jackson. The year was 1835, and France owed the United States millions of dollars from ship robberies during the Napoleonic Wars. The Secretary of State was Martin Van Buren, and the French minister was Edward Livingston. We must take the lead in this matter. January 1st, 1948 would be the last time Mr. President aired in this slot. ABC moved the series to Sundays at 2.30 p.m., beginning January 11th. And we'll see if it doesn't get results. The Mutual Broadcasting System's best chance at ratings competition was in the New York market, where WOR broadcasts Family Theater at 10. On New Year's night, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover appeared as host. In another year has starred Glenn Langan and Ruth Hussey. Now our family theater host for tonight, J. Edgar Hoover. The foundation of our democracy was built upon a firm faith in Almighty God. As our nation grew and prospered, as it overcame vicissitudes and adversities, its people never lost faith in a personal God. Our generation, it seems, has allowed old faithful religious practices to slip into oblivion. As a result, family life has been weakened. The nation has suffered, and many of its children have become spiritually starved. A godless home is built upon sand. It is an inviting breeding ground for moral decay and crime. My hope for the future of this nation is predicated upon the faith in God, which is nurtured in the family. No outside influence of a constructive nature can overcome the lack of a guiding light in the home. And the spark of this light must be the knowledge of God. The fuel must be the strength of prayer. This is the first day of a new year, a year in which great things will be accomplished, we hope. But the greatest thing we as individuals can do for ourselves and for our country will be to keep our families together in peace and happiness. There is no better way of doing our part for home life in America than by reestablishing the daily practice of family prayer in our homes. Because families that pray together stay together. I wish every family from coast to coast a joyful and happy new year. Good night and God bless you. Our thanks to J. Edgar Hoover, our host tonight, and Ruth Hussey and Glenn Langan for their performances this evening. Our play was written by Mark Carney with music scored and conducted by Max Tear. This production of Family Theater Incorporated was directed by David Young and was transcribed in Hollywood. Others who appeared in the cast were Alma Lawton, Ken Harvey, Colleen Collins, Patty Chapman, and Marion Richmond. Eddie Cantor would not stay in New York during the winter, so that meant that I was migrating back and forth. I was eight or nine months in Hollywood oh, I see. and three or four months in New York in the summer. New York in the summer I never liked.
<laughs> I never really not like New York at all. <laughs> no, I, I shouldn't say that. There was a lot about New York that I liked. But for a living, mm. I still liked California. And after I'd gone through that experience for several years, I just felt, first of all, I was still receiving my salary from the advertising agency, but I was only servicing, really, one program, one client. I just didn't like it. I resigned two or three times, and they paid mm. no attention to me. Well, finally, they gave up. When that happened, I moved out here, mm. came back to California as a freelance, and, of course, I had Eddie Cantor, with whom I signed exclusively. Pat's Blue Ribbon Beer proudly presents... With Bert Gordon as the Mad Russian, Cookie Fairchild's Orchestra, yours truly, Harry Ponzell, Eddie Cantor, and our special guest for tonight, Al Jolson. You know, ladies and gentlemen, in recent years, the movie industry has followed a definite trend toward biographical pictures. For permission to do the life story of Jerome Kern, MGM paid $500,000. To make the Jolson story, Columbia paid $750,000. And now, Warner Brothers plans making the life of Eddie Cantor. Mr. Cantor, $800,000. $800,000? That's our final figure. Well, if I have to pay it, I'll pay it. One year ago. Yesterday, Eddie finished the first draft of the script. And Harry, look! What is it, Look at the dedication here on the front page. Yeah? To Margie, Natalie, Edna, Marilyn, and Janet, without whom this book would never have been possible. Oh. And to Ida, without whom Margie, Natalie, Edna, Marilyn, and Janet would never have been possible. How does the story open? You want to hear my life story, I'd Harry? I'd love to hear it, yeah. It starts out with me as a kid on the Lower East Side. Uh-huh. We were terribly poor, Harry. We had to share an apartment with the Murphys. They had eight kids in their family, and we had 12 kids in ours. And we were always getting mixed up. You couldn't tell the Murphy kids from the Cantors. Well, how did you ever get straightened out? Every morning, Mrs. Murphy would yell, Come and get your ham and eggs. Those that didn't go were Cantors. <laughs> We had locks. Well, Harry, <laughs> let me tell you something. Time passed. Yeah. Time passed, and I grew up, and love came into my life. The first and last girl I've ever loved, Ida. She was so cute, and she always had a little blue ribbon in her hair. She did? Yeah, she used to shampoo herself with paps. <laughs> I was in love with Ida, but so was the toughest kid on the block, Slugger Shapiro. He was a delivery boy for the butcher. According to the code of the East Side, when two guys love the same girl, it had to be fought out with bare fists. With bare fists? Yes. And while he and Ida were fighting, I got his job in the butcher shop. <laughs> Whatever happened to Slugger Shapiro? Well, he lost the fight, but he was good looking and he got a job in pictures. He made good, too. You've probably seen him. Pat O'Brien? <laughs> Slugger Shapiro is Pat O'Brien. Yes. Eddie, you know something? This picture of yours really sounds like money. You think it'll win the Academy Award? No, it'll bring back bank night. <laughs> but go on with the story. How, how did you start in show business? My first appearance on the stage was at Miner's Bowery Theater. It was amateur night. That's when I learned potatoes are cheaper, tomatoes are cheaper. You sang it? No, they threw them at me. I got them for nothing. 
It was in 1910, Harry. At 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time, the Eddie Cantor Show with announcer Harry Von Zell took to the air sponsored by Pabst Blue Ribbon. In the early 1930s, Cantor was America's biggest radio star. His 1933 rating was 55.7. Cantor had spent the first half of the 1940s entrenched on Wednesday nights with his Time to Smile program sponsored by Bristol Myers and Sal Hepatica. When Paps began picking up the tab in the fall of 1946, NBC moved the show to Thursday nights at 10.30. Eddie, you've come a long way since those days, imagine. You're a big star, and now they're going to make the story of your life. Yes, Harry Von Zell. In a couple of months, the picture will be finished, the life of Eddie Cantor. Yeah. Gosh, I can just see the name up in fog lights. Yeah. <laughs> fog lights? Yeah. It's going to open in Los Angeles. <laughs> Which reminds me, Harry, I've got to go over to Warner Brothers. They're having a meeting about who's going to play me in the picture. <laughs> Never knew a man who was able to expend that much energy over so many years and still maintain it. There may have been an answer to that. Eddie told me once, I don't know whether it was something he fabricated or whether it, was, it sounds logical. He had already become a star with, with Ziegfeld. Mm -hmm. He was very young. He became a star when he was in his teens, really. But uh, he, as he matured, he became a bigger star. And, of course, a big thing with the eyes, where, you know, in a large theater, person in the back row, when he rolled his eyes, you could see him go backwards and forward. And they popped. They were big eyes. Mm -hmm. A doctor contacted. This is Eddie's story that he told me. Doctor contacted Eddie, and he said, I don't want to intrude, uh, but he said, I feel as a doctor, it's, I should bring this to your attention. I would like to examine you. It's my opinion that you have uh, hyperthyroid. And he said, this is a source of this energy that you have. It's also the thing that makes your eyes pop and that enables you to handle them mm -hmm. the way you do. Now, he said, as you get older, that could be threatening to your health. You could lose your energy. And he said, a simple operation would, uh, in my opinion, correct it. And of course, you want to get the opinion of, you know, surgeons, other doctors. And he was moved by it, but he said, this operation, if I had it, my eyes wouldn't pop anymore. He said, no, they wouldn't. It would be more or less normal. He says, forget it. <laughs> forget it. Never mind my energy if I help. My eyes stop popping, mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm through. After the time slot changed, Cantor's rating fell three points. The trend continued in 1947 when the show fell from 19th to 58th overall. It was the first time Cantor had fallen out of the top 20. He'd never return. The radio era was coming to an end. In September of 1950, Cantor went into TV, becoming one of several rotating hosts on NBC's Sunday Night Colgate Comedy Hour. You know, I don't, 
Barbara, were you with the first Niner program when it first went on the air? No, June Meredith was. Uh huh. June Meredith and Jack, what, Doty? Well, did. Jack Doty did it for a very short time, and but he, yeah, then, and then Donna Michi. And was then, the first. then Betty Lou Gerson replaced June mm -hmm. Meredith. And they came out here when Don got his Fox contract. They when he became Alexander Graham Bell. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And they auditioned, first Niner auditioned every ingenue in town to do second business for the six weeks they were going to be here. Betty Lou Gerson was mm -hmm. the leading lady. And uh, I got it. I did second business with them for six weeks. And then Betty Lou went back to Chicago for the summer hiatus. And she got off the train and married Joe Ainley the very day that she got back there. So since she had just gotten married when, the, when they went back on the air in September, she didn't want to come out here and leave him. And so they got me, and so I did it with Donna Meacher for nine months. We went back to Chicago, and who turned out to be our director but Joe Ainley, <laughs> the man she'd given up the show for. That's <laughs> right. Les Tremaine and I did it for about six years, mm -hmm. and then Olin and I did it for about 11. Well, you started, it was around 1936, 30, wasn't it? 36, 36 yeah. yeah. 36, September of 36, uh -huh. and I went to Chicago, and uh, I got there the 1st of June in 37. And was there until mm -hmm. June of '46. I rounded my nine years off nicely. Yeah. The day. Olin, when did you come into the first nighter scene? In '43, really, just ten years, I guess, because we came out here uh, in '47 and went off there in '53. That's right. So That's I did right. the last ten years it was on. Mm -hmm. I had the pleasure of being with Barbara longer than any of the other leading men. <laughs> In the fall of 1947, CBS counterprogrammed Eddie Cantor by moving the first nighter program opposite the comedian. By 1947, the first nighter was in its 16th season on the air, and the third starring Barbara Luddy and Olin Soule. On New Year's night, the first nighter program presented a lighthearted radio play entitled The One in the Middle. Campana's first nighter program. From the little theater off Times Square. Starring Olin Soule and Barbara Luddy with an all-star cast presented by Campana, the quality name in cosmetics. Theater Time, Broadway. And on this New Year's night, a new play makes its bow to the public from the stage of the Little Theater off Times Square. It's an exciting event because hosts of celebrities always attend these opening nights on the Great White Way. And to be sure that you miss none of the fun, Here's your host for the evening, the genial First Nighter. Although First Nighter didn't win its time slot, it created enough competition to help CBS pull even with NBC. Just two years after placing only one program in Thursday's top ten, William Paley's network now had five. 
Here was the scene last night of one of the greatest New Year's Eve celebrations in history. The crowds were thick in Times Square, and tonight it's by no means deserted. Just ahead now is the Little Theater. must have a magic touch. She's surrounded by photographers. I understand we'll all have a magic touch tonight. Have your tickets ready, please. Have your tickets ready, please. Good evening, Mr. Persnatter. The usher will show you to your seats. Thank you. We'll go right in. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're in our seats, and I must say as I look over the audience that every woman here tonight must have the magic touch. I never saw so much beauty. Tonight's play is a comedy romance called The One in the Middle, written by Virginia Safford Lynn and co-starring Olin Soule and Barbara Luddy. That sounds like just what the doctor should order for New Year's night, a chance to relax and laugh. Mr. Soule, I see by the program, is to play the part of Peter Randolph, a recently returned vet. Miss Luddy is cast as Franny, a young lady tentatively engaged in the pursuit of higher education. And what an all-star supporting cast, including B. Benadaret as Tabby Randolph, Peter's sister, Sandra Gould as Maudie, Jane Webb as Jean, and other famous names. But now, before first curtain, let's listen to Frank Worth and his First Nighter Orchestra. Curtain, first curtain, have you heard about Magic Touch? There's the signal for first curtain. The house lights are out, and here's the play. Come in. I haven't got an apple, but may I come in anyway, teacher? For mercy's sakes, <laughs> Peter! Oh, says, how are you? Oh, <clears throat> darling, Peter! I didn't expect you until next week. Well, my discharge came through sooner than I expected. Oh, let me see how you look. Hmm? Oh, you still look that way. Oh, stop. <laughs> Listen, Tabby, could you put me up here at the school for a while? Well, uh, I could put you in the assistant principal's room down the hall. Mm -hmm. Come on, bring your suitcase. He's left, and we haven't got a new one yet. Ah, oh, good old sis. <laughs> well, see, it's really a nice room. Mm-hmm, lap of luxury, no less. Say so. Great Scott, sound general quarters, what's that? The young ladies returning from their daily constitutional. Golly, where can we go? I'll protect you. <laughs> young ladies? Less noise, if you please. Yes, Miss Randolph. Oh, uh, girls, one moment. I believe this would be an opportune time for you to meet my brother, Peter Randolph. Oh. Young ladies, where are your manners? How do you do, Mr. Randolph? Well, uh, how do you do, young ladies? Oh, Mr. Randolph, it'll be wonderful having you here with us. Oh, it really will. It's our first real break since they put in electrical refrigeration and the ice band stopped coming thing. Well, thank you, I think. Mr. Randolph, astronomy is my most favorite subject. Well, thank you for telling me. Oh, thank you for listening. <laughs> Young ladies, kindly proceed to your rooms, if you please. Yes, yes, Mr. Randolph. Goodbye, Mr. Randolph. Goodbye, goodbye. For the love of heaven, Tabby, get inside here quick. They might get loose again. <laughs> Peter, huh? do you know what they think? No, and don't tell me. The assistant principal always teaches astronomy. And all I can say is, heaven help him, whoever he's going to be. Peter, dear, I've got news. He's going to be you. Well, that's very nice. Hey, wait a minute. Yes, Peter. No, Tabby. Peter, I didn't write you about this, but the school's really on the rocks. Well, how could it be with all those girls? Well, most of the 50 aren't coming back next semester. They're very bored. Peter, you'll have to face it. You are the Navy's gift to the Randolph Seminary for young ladies. 
<laughs> oh, no, I'm not. Tabby, you're a very nice sister, and I'm extremely fond of you. But you're not that nice, and I'm not that fond. Is your child's school giving him the best possible education to fit him to do his job as a citizen? In many American communities, the answer is no. For throughout our country today, millions of children are going to school in crowded classrooms, are doing without essential supplies such as paper and textbooks, and in many cases, are being taught by poorly trained substitute teachers. Many of the best teachers in our school systems have been so overworked and underpaid that they've left their profession and their places are filled with inadequate teachers or not filled at all. And the reason for all this? You, as a parent and a taxpayer, simply haven't been paying enough attention to what's been going on. The situation can be corrected if you will investigate the educational conditions in your community and join with community groups to take positive action that needs to be taken if our children are not to be cheated out of the good education they deserve. Now, once again, back to the NBC Newsroom. Near Salem, Oregon, a logging truck crashed through a bridge along a country road, completely wrecking it. And then officials learned that the stork was expected in three homes separated from hospitals and doctors by the missing bridge. So the county borrowed a movable bridge from the state and is making an all-out effort to get it installed. And unless the stork shows an awful burst of speed, they figure they'll make it. That's the story, folks. John Cameron Swayze saying goodbye from the newsroom in New York. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. We've reached the end of our trilogy on the 1947-48 radio season. But we're not done with 1948. When William Paley saw the success that My Friend Irma was having Monday nights on CBS, he decided to launch female-driven summer replacement comedies. The first was Armis Brooks starring Eve Arden. It debuted on Monday, July 19th. And the second debuted on Friday, July 23rd, and starred the woman on whom we'll focus episode 100 of Breaking Walls. I always wanted to get into show business. I never even got close to it. Not even close to it. I never appeared in anything except back in Jamestown. How do you explain that? Because that's that, that implies I didn't have that any. I didn't know where to go to get in. I didn't have any connections. I didn't know anyone in show business. I didn't even know how to look it up in the paper. I guess I don't know. Finally, I got so hungry, I, I decided to become a model so I could eat, and I became a good model. But models aren't supposed to eat. That's true. <laughs> But I was so thin and so tall, it didn't matter. I didn't eat too much. World is certain. I found out how to go to Needix and slip into a stool, grab the nickel tip and grab the half a donut someone left, and put the nickel down again and say, may I have a cup of coffee? That and how to, uh, to confiscate leftover food when you were taken out to dinner at night. We'll break that leaf yet. Now remember, when you come home tonight, make a lot of noise. Oh, that reminds me. I won't be home till late tonight, honey. Why? Well, we have to rehearse for a couple of hours after the club closes. Ricky, why don't you have the rehearsal here? 
Hey, are you crazy? I got a 16-piece band. I'll blow the roof off the joints. Well, doesn't look like rain. I'll do it. <laughs> Next time on Breaking Walls, it's episode 100. We'll focus on a woman so renowned for her humor and humanity that even 30 years after her death, she's still immediately recognized by the utterance of just a single first name, Lucy. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning. Network Radio Ratings, 1932-53 by Jim Ramsberg. As well as articles from Radio Daily, December 1947 and January 1948. And Broadcasting Magazine, May 31st, 1948. On the interview front, Mel Allen, Jackson Beck, John Gibson, Jackie Kilk, Tony Marvin, Jan Miner, Rosa Rio, and William N. Robeson or with Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. These interviews can be heard at goldenage-wtic.org. Chuck Shaden spoke to Barbara Luddy, Gloria McMillan, Olin Soule, Rudy Valley, and Harry Von Zell. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. And William Paley gave a speech while receiving an award on November 20, 1958. Arthur Godfrey and Andy Rooney spoke for CBS's 50th anniversary. George Burns and Jack Benny were interviewed for Great Radio Comedians. Bing Crosby was interviewed for Same Time, Same Station in 1972, while Spurdvac was with Betty Lou Gerson in 1979, and Dennis Day was with John Dunning for 71 KNUS on Easter Sunday, April 11, 1982. Selected music featured in today's episode was... What Are You Doing New Year's Eve by Margaret Whiting. Campana Sobre Campana by J.B. Torres. Old Lang Syne by the Manhattan Strings and Guy Lombardo. Someone to Watch Over Me by Rosemary Squires and the Ken Thorne Orchestra. And I'll Be Seeing You by the Harry James Band. Special thanks to our sponsors, 12 Chimes It's Midnight, the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, and hey, it's Jolly Entertainment for their audio drama, The Veiled Monarch. Buy them all on iTunes or at their links in the written credits. A special thank you to Ted Davenport and Jerry Haindages, two radio show collectors who've helped supply material for this episode. They're who the large retailers go to. Ted's got a Facebook group, Radio Memories. And for Jerry, please visit otrsite.com. I've been visiting since the year 2000. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls Episode 100 will be a milestone event that coincides with the 8th anniversary of the original Wall Breakers launch. For this episode, we'll focus on the radio career of Lucille Ball. It will be available beginning February 1st, 2020, everywhere you get your podcasts, and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime... Give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Wallbreakers Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash the Wallbreakers. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as a buck a month 
by going to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thewallbreakers. So until February 1st, 2020, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 99, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much, and Happy New Year.